Hello everybody and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the movie review podcast where we review movies on a podcast. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. No sound effect this week. Taking a break. Taking a break. Okay, well, we're also um, recording on uh, a, an older computer. Yes, we're also, so, we're so also the, in a bad circle. The sound effect is on another hard drive. Our, our library is all messed up. Anyway, who are, who, my name is William Bibiani. Uh, I'm uh, a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. I don't have a nickname. Uh, I write for Slash Film. Mm. And I write a lot for slash film. You sure do. You're very uh, prolific. I admire I, it. I wrote a I wrote an article today on Doctor Crusher from Star Trek. Bless you. And how uh, how she's my my point was she's such a good character uh-huh. that they didn't know how to write for her. I would argue that she's such a good doctor they don't know how to write for. Like she doesn't really have meaningful flaws. Well, like she that that's the point. Like yeah. she she's actually like so capable and mature a character. Yeah. They didn't have like anything for her to overcome anymore. So they yeah. couldn't write any good stories for her. Anyway. <laughs> I wrote an essay about that. You wrote an essay about an essay. Uh this is uh, this is a great good claim we do the thing. Uh so uh lately over the last few months uncritically acclaimed we have run into one snag after another it's it's just been a, a, a cavalcade of disaster we keep building up momentum and then shit happens in november uh i had a really really nasty case of laryngitis yeah we couldn't record couldn't record we did one filling episode but it really affected our the we make a lot of podcasts we really affected the number we can make and then uh last week This little jerk over here sitting on the couch. Our wonderful white and orange cat, Dante. uh, I I left the room to get something. I came back and he was sitting on my laptop. And uh, when I shooed him off, like, hey, get down from there. And he was like, oh, I'm so sorry. And he left. Um, the, the, The screen didn't work anymore. I don't know how the, we, what a cat could have done. No idea. I checked all the settings. We did the whole, uh, uh, you know, checking the brightness and whatever. I ended up having to make an appointment. It took several days to get an appointment to get the uh, computer in. And when I did, I brought it in. I opened it up saying, as you can see, the screen doesn't work. And then the screen turned on. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh. I guess it's fine now. So I took it home and I was like, oh, well, thank goodness for that. It was a couple of days of low productivity, but at least everything's fine. And I take it home, I open it up, and then the screen doesn't work again. So I take it back again. Oh, my gosh. And uh, sure enough, it needs a whole new screen. I, I the don't know. The top half of the laptop needs to be completely replaced. I, I Look, I'm, I'm not a computer technician. Nor I've am never, I. I've never built one. Nope. Not, not even one of those Dells. I've no. never even selected one. Dude, I just get them off the shelf. you got to get a Dell. Uh, Remember that I, was that was the slogan for Dell back in okay. like the early two thousands. There was this guy if, if he said, were "Dude, still you gotta a... get a Dell." He was like this really like broy frat boy dude, but he was really into Dells, and he would just be like, "Hey, you need a computer, dude? You gotta get a Dell." <laughs> if if uh, a Dell and Dell computers were popular mm. at the same time, they could have done a crossover ad marketing campaign. That will never happen again. Uh, Dell computers are not point back. point being. I couldn't possibly fathom. Mm-hmm. What a cat yeah. could do to a computer in just a few moments. Just a few moments. Like, <laughs> like seriously, 10, 15 second stops. No idea. And he was just sitting on it. He wasn't like scratching at it or something or knocking just it off the sitting table. sitting on the computer. Just sitting on the No idea. Now, to, he is a heavy cat. Yeah, I mean, he's not like, he's not like weirdly large. He's just a healthy boy. Yeah, you know, he's not he's not large. He's he's one of the densest cats I've met. Like, yeah, you he's try a strong, pick, muscular. You try to cat. pick up yeah. the cat and like it. It's he's like got some heft. 
twice yeah. as much cat in that cat. He's a very listen. He gets a lot of exercise. He runs around the apartment a lot. He's 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 a good healthy boy. But in any case, very confusing. Fortunately, it's covered under my warranty, but it's taking a really long time to get fixed. So. We still don't have an ETA on that, which means that there are certain things on this old, like really old laptop that I'm doing right now that I can't do very well. One of which is listen to podcasts. So we're kind of just flinging on a wing and a prayer here because <laughs> the speakers don't work very good. And even coming out of headphones, they're not 100% great. So I'm just hoping that this will sound okay enough to record and maybe it'll sound great. If, there's, if it's weird, that's why. Um, and also I can't like do images good which is kind of a big deal for like other work stuff that i do um it also doesn't have like our, our library on it like sound effects and stuff um so, so, the, the, so the podcast might sound a little different yeah and the also point. there's other stuff that we we don't have assets for some of our patreon podcasts which have very specific uh, audio needs and clip needs uh we don't have uh the capacity to do discord hangouts so we've had to push back our scheduling for some of our Patreon stuff. It's been a week. It's been a heck of a week. It's been an it? annoying week in I'm a not. lot of ways. But uh, in any case, we're, we're doing our best. And hopefully we'll be back up and running before the end of the week. That's based on the timeline I was given. The likely timeline, anyway. Mm -hmm. We shall see. But uh, we are back with some movie reviews. And although we've got a couple of weeks to catch up on, one of those weeks was the first week in December in which almost nothing ever opens. Uh, it's it's a little breath. Yeah. Before the awards season, like, all of the big Christmas time releases. Yeah, we got a, cup, get we get a couple of big time releases at Thanksgiving weekend. You know, people want to you know, mm -hmm. see movies with their families, so they release a couple of big-ish things. And then the latter half of Christmas, there'll be like one or two blockbusters this year. Avatar's coming out. Uh, and a whole bunch of movies that are just screaming to get out in time for their Academy Awards qualifying runs. But the first week in December, I, it did almost nothing. There was a movie called Violent Night starring David Harbour mm. as Santa Claus. It's like Die Hard if John McClane was Santa. Great premise. Neat idea, yeah. I didn't get a chance to see it because... Of a whole bunch of other shit I don't even want to get into right now. We're digressing too much at the start of the podcast. So I didn't get to see that. You didn't get to see that. This week on Critically Acclaimed, we are going to be reviewing Darren Aronofsky's The Whale, uh, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, the stop-motion animation version, not to be confused with the Robert Zemeckis version that came out this year, or the Polly Shore version that came out this year. Was, was that the Russian animated film? Yep. Okay, yeah. Uh, so and this, <laughs> Pinocchio 2022 Volume 3. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's public domain, so it's all fair game. Uh, next we have a horror movie called A Wounded Fawn, and then the latest Noah Baumbach film, White Noise, which I assume is a remake of that Michael Keaton horror movie. It's not. Well, then that's some bullshit, and they should get sued. It's a DeLillo novel. DeLillo shouldn't have ripped off that Michael Keaton horror movie. <laughs> I'm just gonna say that right now. The Michael Keaton horror movie, uh, scares the heck out of me. Because, yeah, really? Well, that kind of like whispers inside of static mm -hmm. to like freaks me out regardless that michael and keaton then they made movie a, whole, a whole horror movie about that yeah the michael keaton movie is about a guy who is uh trying to uh, there's a theory that white noise this sort of uh just picking up radio waves randomly in the air nothing oh. that's actually being emitted uh, uh by like man-made tv devices. static the, the, yeah. the stations between the stations the idea is that just hearing that sort of chaotic noise might you might be able to pick up supernatural phenomena yeah like the, there's ghosts that are being sort of like snagged out of that signal ghosts or radio waves yeah um 
I, I this is another digression. I apologize, but uh, I, I went to go see. We, we, we've got we're missing two weeks of digressions. Let's just uh, so get, let's them, all get them all out there. Yeah. Um, in Las Vegas, Nevada, uh, no. Zach Bagans. I'm not sure if you know who Zach Bagans is. He's I have the, no idea. He's one of the ghost hunters guys. Like, oh, he's okay. got one of those ghost hunting TV shows. Yeah, he's the one who caught all those ghosts. Uh, and proved that they scientifically exist yeah, that, uh, after all I, these years. Uh, after like 14 seasons, still can't find those ghosts. Um, they're, they're elusive, man. They, you know what? It's like the fugitive. If the fugitive, My, uh, like the main character was Deputy Gerard, uh, and like the majority of the episode was just him going, well, he's not here. My, uh, <laughs> Maybe we'll get him in the finale. <laughs> My theory is that ghosts aren't stupid, and they see like assholes with cameras coming into their haunted uh, mansion. They're not going to show up for them. Yeah. Uh, so that, that lets me... Let's let you enjoy the possibility. Enjoy that, yeah. that ghosts still might might be out yeah. there. Um, but they have a white noise room. It's it, the, this haunted mansion is like all of these weird things that he's collected. Sure. Things that are said to have been haunted. Uh, some things are like legitimately uh, macabre. Like mm. like here's the pot that Ed Gein actually like cooked human parts in. Like oh actually, god, like, he, he actually owns has that. that. Yeah, like, you buy okay, stuff like creepy. that. Here's like that's uh, legitimately creepy. Here's like okay. John Wayne Gacy paintings. Like he has things like that. That's as legitimately well. creepy. Okay, but uh, he also has. I'm not sure what that's. I don't think that's haunted. I, well, I guess the Ed Gein thing would be. I know about the paintings. I, just but Can you, you imagine know, like any, anything haunting sort of the like painting of the guy who killed you? Like that's kind of like oh, God, I'm <laughs> stuck here. It sucks. <laughs> But uh, there's a room, they have this like white noise room yeah. and they, they put you in this room and it's, of course, the lights are really dim and they set up like a little dollhouse and then, you know, there's like, it's like mm. backlit so you can't see things really, really well. Yeah. And they say, and we have this like special, uh, this radio that's like tuned into like ghost frequencies. Yeah. And they say, and we're going to, we're going to close this door and like the host who's like leading you through the house leaves you in there by yourself. Ooh. And they say, and you can like ask questions Ooh. to the ghost. So they, they put you in, yeah. and then you get this loud, like, you can barely yeah. hear yourself think, because it's right. so loud. And and you know, we're, we're just sort of in there, it's like, well, what do we say? Hello! Like, we hear, like, this little voice. I don't know if it's a host playing a prank on us. Yeah. Or if there's really a ghost. It might just be projection. The whole point is that it's chaotic noise. You yeah, could be yeah. just imagining, like, it says something. Mm. You expect, when you say hello, someone to say hello yeah. back, and it kind of sounds like a hello. Yeah. You kind of uh, pick out that I, piece. I, I, I didn't know what to ask a random ghost at that moment, so I just yelled out over this loud noise, What's your favorite food? Like, tell me your favorite food. <laughs> and I just heard, You. Like, oh, I'm, God. I said, Oh, shit, I'm out. I'm out. It worked. You scared me. All right, that's amazing. That, that was a fun experience. I, 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 rec- I recommend the Zach Bagans Haunted Museum. It's 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 a hoot. It's okay, really a lot of fun. That's really good. Anyway, we should we should review some movies. Where do you want to start? Well, let's start with White Noise. Okay, fine. I didn't see this one, so yeah, you're gonna they, have to you're gonna have to take point on this. Right. I could I was gonna see this. I could have sworn this came out like Christmas Day. I was uh, I was ready to watch it. I was I hadn't read the book. I was gonna check it out. This is and uh, uh, yeah, I just had no idea. This is one of those Netflix films that's like in limited release, and that I think is going to be on Netflix. Oh, is that why? Uh, I was thinking later. of the Netflix release, uh, not the theatrical. Yeah, You're yeah. talking about the uh, theatrical. So okay. it's 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 out now. Uh, no, no, it's in, fair in, game. It's just theaters. it's it's fine. It's just that's how I got screwed up. Uh, at least now I feel a little better. Um, yeah, this is of this film is a very bizarre animal because it's based on a Don DeLillo novel. I'm not right. sure. I I haven't read Don DeLillo, but I know that he has these mm. sort of like sp- sprawling. Uh, kind of like 1980s apocalypse fantasies, which is very much what White Noise is about. Okay. Um, uh, surely you know about the band The Airborne Toxic Event. I've heard of them. That they 
that phrase comes from the Don DeLivel novel, White Noise. Oh, okay. Yeah, the airborne toxic event. Okay. And so the the main uh, characters in this movie are this family... I see family... you struggling to describe this. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to like, yeah. find the entry point. So I, uh, Adam Driver mm. plays a professor at, at a local uh, university in a, a fictional town. Okay. And he is uh, an expert in Hitler studies. He teaches oh. about Adolf Hitler. Okay. Uh, and he is a superstar at the university. And there's a scene where uh, a rival professor is played by Don Cheadle, who is an Elvis expert, have almost this like dueling banjos uh, lecture off. Okay. So the, the, it's this kind of like weird bent world where everybody like actually being a noisy intellectual is brings you a lot of acclaim. Okay. Uh, and they all go shopping in uh, this really gigantic... Uh, this takes place in 1985, and it, it takes place in this gigantic um, grocery store where everything's very neat and clean, and it's all these recognizable products. If you were a kid... Like, implausibly days. gigantic? like Or just really big? Uh, just really, really big. Okay. And, and, like, really neat and very clean. It, it looks like... So it's a, not fantastical. It, it, it's just a really big But it big looks like store. a satire. Like, okay. everything's really kind of exaggerated. Okay. So there's this element of we're living in the these this like consumerist palace right. as well. So there's this kind of weird apocalyptic tone to it, Got it. which infected a lot of uh, media in the 1980s. You'll see the, that kind of iconography about uh, this sort of 1950s idealism, but maybe slightly bent in a way. Oh yeah, no, that's uh, uh, Blue Velvet had yeah, that. Blue parents, Velvet, yeah, you know, I, I love Parents I th- for that very reason. Yeah. Um, so th- this is the world they live in. Uh, Greta Gerwig plays his wife, and they have a gaggle of children that he's had with various wives over the years. Okay. Uh, and they all have very peculiar interests, and uh, the teenage daughter has noticed that the mom, the Greta Gerwig character, mm. has been secretly uh, taking pills of some kind and hasn't been telling anybody about these. She's like, takes a pill when nobody's looking and throws uh, throws things away so they're not to be found. She's mm. hiding some sort of medication. Uh, and then the airborne toxic event occurs. There's a big fire on the edge of town and they talk about how there's just sort of a, maybe some kind of poisonous cloud drifting mm-hmm. out over the town. And there's this big long sequence where they all have to pile in a car and they get caught in a traffic jam and they drive through fields and the, they drive into a river and float across the river and drive out the other side. And they end up going into uh, sort of like a, a safety camp where the Adam driver character learns that when he gassed up earlier, he was exposed to the airborne toxic event, ah. but that's all that we know about it. It is the airborne toxic event they don't know what it's going to do to him and that he's going to start having symptoms or maybe not. And he's going to die at some point or maybe not. It's very, right. very weird. Like this Gilliam moments. So yeah, yeah. You've been infected and you might be sick. Okay. Next. Yeah. And it's, it's, kinda, it's, and he, it's, it's a liminal crisis. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> may or may not be a thing. This, however, kicks off this crisis of mortality in the Adam driver character. And in so doing, he's also investigating those mysterious pills that Greta Gerwig was taking, and we learn about this pill. And this is actually a pretty well-known detail from the novel, if okay. you know anything about the Don DeLillo novel, that it's a special pill that will take away your fear of death. Oh! So that and so this is a film. Oh, that actually sounds neat. <laughs> <laughs> I realize that I realize that clearly that would have major ramifications and then issues for society at large. But as I've mentioned before on the podcast many times, I'm specifically phobic about death as a concept, mm. not like 
uh, like fear of dying a specific mm-hmm. way. That's not that's neither here nor there. Just the fact of death freaks me out. Have you ever done, gone to like uh, like funeral homes or yeah. like grim like the Museum of Death? There's one in Hollywood, the Museum of Death, where they have like <sighs> guillotines and torture devices. And yeah, stuff like that. Stuff. Yeah. Okay. Like a taxidermist shop. Again, you know, again, I'm fa- not facing it. Might help. I'm not concerned about corpses. I'm not concerned right. about things that would kill me. I'm concerned about the state of non-existence and the well, uh, and the temporality of human existence. Like okay. it, it's, it's it's more cosmic than practical. Okay, you know, like I I just mm. and it's it, let's let's not get into my therapy. We'll be here all day. <laughs> it's it's a whole thing. You know? From from dust we came. From dust to dust yes. we will return. We can talk um, if it's someone. We, we can talk about it in detail when we're not talking about. But but you know Noah Bombach. Th- that actually goes into white noise because this is very much about the fear of death. Okay. That death is just sort of hanging over everything. And I think that's a very uh, specifically 1980s concern. Mm. I know that uh, when I, I was a kid in the 1980s, and I remember seeing this everywhere in like satire and in media, uh-huh. this uh, generally pervasive sense that the world was about to end. Though it was like it was like a Cub- the Cuban Missile Crisis for like eight straight years. Whitney, I hate to break this to you, yeah. but that is very pervasive right now. It's pervasive right now, but I'm I'm talking about the, the specific threat of nuclear annihilation. I understand that specific context of the yeah. '80s was different, but you got to. Re- I, I realize that like we've been talking about how oh things are different now mm-hmm. uh, after COVID. <laughs> And it's, after yeah. a whole generation of not just apocalyptic speculation about climate change, but we're starting to see legitimate impact. Yeah. Like wildfires raging out of control more often and more mm-hmm. seriously. We're starting... We're, there's legitimate concern that we're... Think, uh, <laughs> that, there's a, that there's a ticking clock at I'm, the moment. I'm that a, it's getting louder. Like, I, I think I think a lot of younger people are have, have some awareness of this concept. I, I don't I think it's an alien so. concept. I, the, I, uh, the specifics may be different, but I think we're still... In that zone, more than maybe I, we're, I guess talking, so. we're yeah, getting credit it, for. It, I, 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 I guess I felt it more sharply when I was a kid and seeing it as a child. Right. Well, when you're growing uh, up with it, it's really intense. Point being, uh, because this is set in the mid '80s, and because the book was written in the mid '80s, that very specific fear of nuclear annihilation right. is very much flavoring Noah Baumbach's version of White Noise. Mm. Uh, this film, it's. Two hours and fifteen minutes long, okay. and it's a fucking mess. Oh uh, no! You, it's. I mean, it, 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 it's Tom uh, Don DeLillo is. Um, I don't want to compare him to uh, Vonnegut in terms of like his style because I've only read like mm-hmm. I haven't finished a, a, a Don DeLillo book. I've like read passages, but uh, from what I understand, he, he writes in this very sort of abstract Vonnegut-like way where there's a lot of absurd things going on all at once. Yeah, making uh, that kind of a novel very difficult to film. You yeah, could, it, it would be difficult to film a Vonnegut novel. I remember Did when Breakfast see, of yeah. Champions came out, everyone was like, "How could they film it? You can't actually. Pardon? You can't actually. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's although it's, they said that about Slaughterhouse Five, and they actually made a pretty good. The, the Slaughterhouse Five movie is actually not bad. Uh, yeah, the Breakfast really of Champions job. movie is is also a yeah. mess. It gets kind of they yeah. also added a bunch of stuff, which is really weird. I think I think a part of that though, and I'm only speaking. Yeah, I've never read Don DeLillo. I've read some Vonnegut. Vonnegut's great. Um, I went through a big Vonnegut phase. I, I didn't go through a big Vonnegut yeah. phase, but I've read some Vonnegut. Vonnegut's incredibly talented. I don't think they're unfilmable. I think that it's difficult to fit them within expected cinematic convention, which yeah, is the yeah. natural instinct. Where's the three act structure? How do I d- create a baseline reality? The, if the you character arc, yeah, yeah if you eschew that and are willing to accept that we're going to be living in a heightened existence where. Um, you know, the standard rules don't apply, but there may be other different kinds of rules. 
I think it's very, very possible, but I don't think every filmmaker has it in them. Yeah. yeah like, yeah. I, I, I remember when I read Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, I was like, oh, this could never be a movie. Mm-hmm. And then I saw Gilliam's version, and it's like, no, nah, that's pretty much it, actually. <laughs> it's, it's It doesn't work like a normal film, but it works but like yeah. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Well, and, and you get a filmmaker uh, as, as chaotic as Gilliam. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's going to bring that energy to it. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm watching White Noise, and I'm, I'm almost... I almost feel like I've read the book now because you yeah. can see the kind of weird, the literary intention beneath each individual scene, yeah. even though the film itself doesn't lock together in any kind of meaningful way. Hmm. Uh, and you know, the, 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 the story doesn't really go as wild as you think it might. It ends up like kind of calming down and becoming a little bit more intimate and uh, f- uh, disappointingly easy to grasp yeah. at the end. I would wanted it to be like a little bit more sprawling and a little bit more cerebral, and it kind of starts shrinking back after that. Mm. Uh, it does have a, a really crackerjack ending sequence, which is really nice. Okay, um, set in the grocery store. I like a lot of the visuals. I like the 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 surreality of it, but you can tell that there's a lot of connective tissue missing. It feels like footnotes. Mm. Uh, this either needed to be uh, shaved way down to its base components, okay, uh, or I mean, or do the miniseries. It's mm. one one of those things where it's it's neither fish nor fowl. Uh, as such, it it I appreciate that Noah Baumbach is clearly very passionate about the book. He clearly wants to bring a lot to the book. He has a lot of like wild design, a lot of energy in the movie, but it it feels like a companion to something else rather than a, a whole entity unto itself. You know, again, I didn't see this, and Noah Baumbach is one of those filmmakers where he's actually, if you look at his filmography, he's actually like, oh, he actually directed more than I thought he directed. Oh, yeah, he's he's, done a lot. He's been very prolific, and I haven't seen every single thing he's ever done, but I've seen a lot. Hmm. And I realized something pretty recently, that I don't think I'm such a big fan of Noah Baumbach (laughs) as I am of when other people work with Noah Baumbach. Mm. Like, like when Greta Gerwig yeah. writes Francis Ha. Or Mistress America, yeah. which uh, is great. Mm. Um, I'm in. Yeah. Really, really great. Uh, when he's uh, doing screenplay stuff with Wes Anderson, Fantastic Mr. Fox. He co-wrote Fantastic right, Mr. Fox. He wrote a lot of movies. That's yeah. probably the best Roald Dahl movie. That's a great movie. I mm. love that. That's probably, I think it's the best Wes Anderson movie. It's a great movie. <laughs> it's and up then, there, yeah. Yeah, and, and, but then I'll like watch The Squid and the Whale, and I'm like, I get it. All right, I, not I, interested, but I, I love the squid. I know a lot of people love that movie. I, I picked that for a reason because I didn't want to pick a movie that like other people aren't super into, and like I can I can just get a you know like oh well nobody liked that movie. Like that's a movie a lot of people like, mm. and something about it leaves me very very cold. And that's how I felt about a lot of Marriage Story, a movie that I mm. respect, and I think a lot of people are doing great work in it. I think Alan Alda and Laura Dern in particular are fantastic in that movie. I think it's far lesser uh, than the Squid as the divorce movies go. Sure, uh, the Squid and the Whale is far superior. Uh, Fair enough, and like, but I appreciate what they're doing. I don't think they're inept or anything like that. Mm. They're just very, very cold. But when he's working with other people, I'm like, okay, I don't know if they're just writing over Noah Baumbach or he's just a really good co-writer or something like that. But they somehow those movies connect with me more than the ones he seems to do on his own. Mm. So I'm not even sure I'm a Noah Baumbach fan. <laughs> so I don't know if this is this movie is going to connect with me. Um, I guess kudos for trying to adapt what is considered unadaptable. Mm. You know, points for Moxie. Yeah, I mean that, that that's always admirable. Yeah, uh, and you know, if, I I can see from the film that the novel was difficult. Yeah, uh, and 
yeah, I, I appreciate the, just the chutzpah that takes. But uh, yeah. it, it's not quite successful as a movie. All right, well, let's, uh, let's move on to another take him or leave him director. Let's talk about Darren Aronofsky. Okay. Uh, Darren Aronofsky, I just did an article uh, for The Wrap. Mm-hmm. Uh, in which I did an overview of Darren Aronofsky's film, and these usually take the form of eight or nine by now. I think I think, I think eight. Uh, I'd have to I'd have to have a friend of me. Um, but uh, I, so I, I've mainlined uh, quite a bit of Aronofsky. This, this is his eighth feature film. This is his eighth feature film. He did Pie. He did Requiem for a Dream. Uh, the Fountain. The Fountain. Black Swan. The Wrestler. The Wrestler. Uh, bah, 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 bah. Noah. Noah. Mother. And Mother now and now this. Darren Aronofsky is a filmmaker who, I swear to God, if you had asked me like two weeks ago before I fell into that journey, I'd seen most of his films, mm-hmm. but I hadn't really like watched them recently for the most part, or I hadn't watched them like back to back. If you had asked me two weeks ago. Are you a fan of Darren Aronofsky? Uh-huh. I probably would have been like, he's done some stuff I liked, but no. Okay. Having watched a lot of his movies lately, though, including some of the ones that people trash a lot, like Noah and Mother, I, I actually dig a lot of what he does. Oh. <laughs> I, I kind of admire what Darren Aronofsky has let his career become, or has wanted his career to become, which is nothing but big swings. Mm-hmm. He's never done, like, the closest thing he's done to a middle-of-the-road movie is The Wrestler, and I think that's his best film, because it's actually very striking, even though it's a a character study without, like, any surreal moments or anything in it. Uh, Yeah, uh, if you wanted to argue that, like, the last few sequences are fantasy sequence, you could, but... You you could, uh, but I think it's, I think that's, I think that it earns that. It earns that. It's not, it's, but so many of his films are metaphorically, if not literally, biblical. Mm. Like, Pi, his very first feature, is about someone who is uh, uh, studying intensely huge math, and they're trying to find a mathematical equation that can help sort of predict the universe. Mm. And he ends up... The unified field theorem. Yeah, and he ends up discovering it within... Uh, a religious religious text by mm. like studying I think the Kabbalah or something similar. Yeah, there's, well, there's yeah. a, there's a lot of numerology in, yeah. in, in ancient Jewish texts. Exactly. So that's a very religious film. Requiem for a Dream may not be a particularly religious film, but it's a scare film. Yeah. It's it is although it's very well crafted. It is drugs are bad. Oh yeah. It's, there's no it, nuance to that. It's a it's a scare film about drugs, but it just made very well. I was about to say it's 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 an effective scare oh, film. Yeah. It, it, its status is a, I mean we we see a scare film we think of like garbage films like Reefer Madness. Yeah, films you can uh, watch ironically while you smoke pot. Yeah, uh, you know, and I've, enjoy I've, yourself. I've heard that uh, the the big ironic thing about uh, a lot of these scare films is that they tend to be a lot better. The more altered you are while you're watching them. Well, because they're made, and, and I think this is something that'll be important later in this conversation. Uh, they they stem from a bad assumption, which is that the people in the audience are either operating in bad faith uh-huh. and willing to just go off of their pre-existing ignorance, or they're idiots. That's where a lot <laughs> of scare films start. Yeah, they assume you are they, uh, you are babes in the woods, and you uh, need to be led out. By people who mean well and are going to help guide you and tell yeah. you how to live your life. The, the film is taking uh, 
a, a stance of expertise yeah. that it very clearly doesn't have. Yeah. Uh, and we'll, we'll get to that when we get to the whale. Um, yeah. But then you got like the fountain is this, which, it's a trippy thing. It's trying to talk about our connection with death and how it, and how it filters through art and history and, and multi-generations and immortality yeah. and all the rest. Ambitious. I don't particularly care for it, but I, I appreciate what it does. Uh, Noah, literally biblical. <laughs> it's Old Testament. It's stuff, literally yeah. Old Testament stuff. And yet, it's like his weirdest film. You'd think that would be the straightforward shit. Just do the Old Testament. And he's like, no, I'm going to put some rock monsters in there. Why? Why? Because that's the way angels were described in the Old Testament. But that's... Uh, in some translations. It's just so fucking weird. So, like... Uh, it, it, I love it, though. I love that movie. It should be noted that Darren Aronofsky is Jewish, so mm-hmm. he's exploring his own faith through a lot of these things. Of course he is, and that's fine. Uh, and, and that's also the same with Mother, which is this mm-hmm. really surreal creation myth yeah. as envisioned through, like, modern iconography. It takes place in yeah. a modern-day house. Like, I don't, I don't think it... I think that movie mm. is... Brilliant as a panic attack. <laughs> Isn't it just? I don't think it's necessarily a good movie. I think it's really yeah. heavy-handed and kind of embarrassing in a lot of ways. Oh, but I, I think I, it's... I, I know you like it. I, I dig it uh, yeah. because... And, and again, it's it's the, the big swing thing where he yeah. is really trying... He's trying to do that like college student thing. Man, I'm going to tell like the Bible story in this really kind of intense way in this really like yeah. dark theatrical kind of sense. Well, that's my point. Is sim- it's so Symbolism immature. is a little bit... It's really obvious. It... it but it's it's immaturity in the service of a, a kind of enthusiasm for the the art form, and I appreciate sure. that. And I, th- I think the craft in Mother is really quite excellent. I think mm. he knows how cinema exists to settle us, mm. to give us comfort in our surroundings, to introduce uh, uh, a baseline reality yeah. that we can rely on and trust, and then he knows how to break those rules over the course of Mother uh-huh. to freak us out. And I think he's really good at that. I just think ultimately it doesn't amount to anything terribly interesting. I think it's ultimately kind of adolescent in its overall <laughs> in its overall idea. But uh. fair enough. Um, so I, overall, uh-huh. I, I kind of admire that he's so willing to be really blunt. <laughs> he's a very blunt yeah. filmmaker, there, and I there, think there's, there's a place for that. Absolutely. And, yeah. and I... Um, there are very uh, blunt filmmakers who I I wish there were more filmmakers like them. Someone yeah. like Spike Lee, for instance. Yeah, he's not a subtle filmmaker. No, uh, you, you tell a story constantly where yeah. you just you were reading with him for uh, Chirac, I think. It was for Chirac, and yeah. I just said, "Hey, so your films are really direct." Is and he just sort of like snickered and said, "Yeah, we don't pussyfoot around." He doesn't. Like, no, he doesn't. He wants to get to yeah. the point. He and does not. Here's here's what I admire about Spike Lee, and I think Spike Lee does it better than Aronofsky. Yeah, although he's he's made a few stinkers here and there, but. Yeah, Spike Lee is not... He's not infallible, but he's... He's not flawless. His win-to-lose ratio, considering how prolific he is, very good. Yeah. Um, Spike Lee doesn't want you to be confused by his message. Yeah. He wants you to be... He doesn't... And I think this is wise, considering how media literacy is effectively not taught Uh in our our culture in a lot of ways. Um, He... He'll leave some open-ended questions. I think you know some people have had debates about the you know the the ethics of the very ending of "Do the Right Thing." I think mm-hmm. it's pretty straightforward, but whatever. Um, but he he doesn't want people to get the wrong idea from his movies. He wants to be very clear about his point. Yeah, I think 
that helps sometimes. I think there's, <laughs> there, with certain subjects, we should probably be a little less ambiguous about. We want right, to be. Right. They, we're, they we're demand not, not, a certain clarity. We're not holding you your hand and taking you gently and yeah. through this. We're and gonna, we definitely yeah. don't want to let you come up with your own answers just in case those answers are evil. Yeah. So we we want to be careful. I can appreciate that, and if you're a good yeah. filmmaker, you can do that without it being. Uh, merely heavy-handed. I, I, I want to point out that uh, one of our listeners has taken us to task for, I, for the exact thing we're doing right now. I was getting to that. Uh, <laughs> where we tend to go on, we tend to go on uh, these long tears on a filmography of a certain filmmaker if we're about to trash a movie. And I think that's going to be the case with The Whale because I did not like The Whale. I think The Whale um, is far and away Darren Aronofsky's worst movie. I, I agree with you. I think it it's yeah. easily is worse. I'm not a fan of, of The Fountain. No, I'm not uh, But the, fa- the Fountain at least has like some interesting concepts and yeah. some fun visuals in I'm, it. I'm not going to write it off. Uh, I feel like Darren Aronofsky fundamentally misunderstands the play that he's adapting. Mm-hmm. Um, the Whale is... Uh, Brendan Fraser plays a character named Charlie. Mm. Uh, and Charlie is... Uh, He's a creative writing professor, and from what we've and he's been teaching uh, classes online. Yeah, teaches online classes. He keeps his camera off because he's embarrassed by his size. Mm-hmm. He's, he's six hundred pounds. He, he weighs six hundred pounds, uh, and uh, he has fallen into a very dark place in his life. Yeah. Um, he was uh, dating a very loving man. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alan was his name, I think. I think it was Alan. The, the, we never the, meet him in the movie. He's only, no, he's, he's only he's, discussed. So I'm trying uh, to remember. But if that's uh, his his boyfriend recently yeah. committed suicide, and that's thrown yeah. him into this pit of despair. Yeah, and that's also uh, contributed to uh, overeating, which is causing him to gain a lot of weight. Yeah, uh, and. In addition to all of this, he is constantly being beset by outsiders who are coming into his his life. Yeah. Many uh, of whom is... seem uh, on the surface to be well-meaning. Yeah. But most of whom view him to be a burden or a project or someone who they're yeah. they're, they're beholden to by personal yeah. connection. The, the, the point of this movie that I'm getting from the screenplay, not from Aronofsky, uh-huh. uh, is that all of these characters are lost in their own pits. Mm. They're they're looking at other people and only seeing them through their own view. It's yeah, about this, this like lack of connection. They, they look so, upon uh, each other, but in particular Charlie. Yeah, uh, because he's the lead of the film, uh, and they're, and they're projecting going, they're their going own into his space, their own yeah. fears, their own insecurities, uh, and it, it doesn't. He can do no right. Yeah, he's yeah. just and, they uh, they they look upon him and they see I can push either. An agenda, or uh, someone to someone to save, yeah, someone to fix, someone to berate, someone yeah, who's a terrible uh, human being. And uh, because Charlie is so depressed, he just sort of sits there and takes it. Yeah. Uh, and even when uh, people ask him to do humiliating things, he'll still do it because he has no respect for himself. There's a, there's a moment uh, in the movie, for example, uh, which is is just really monstrous in its construct that someone would do this. He's, um. He he needs he, he needs a mobility aid. He has a walker yeah. to get around, uh, and he's he's on his couch. And a character played by Sadie Sink, his daughter, mm. uh, he was mad at him because he left his mom for <laughs> he's, he left her mom yeah. for her for his boyfriend. Yeah, uh, and they've been estranged, and he hasn't seen her in years. I understand some ire there. Uh, but she insists that he walk over to her. He says, the, you, and, "And she, and, yeah, the, this character is is a villain. She's, like she is genuinely evil." I've in seen this a movie. lot of movies this year, many yeah. horror movies, movies with serial killers in them, uh, 
and she is easily the most evil character I've met this year. Yeah, she she aims to hurt every person she meets. And I want to talk about that in a minute. But there's a there's a point in this movie where he's just trying to connect with her, and he says, "I'll do anything." Uh-huh. And she says, "I want you to walk over to me without so, without your walker." Well, he right? starts to with the walker, and he says, "No, not with that thing." And I'm like, "You ableist monster!" Like, he it, can't. He, he needs to. He he's needs that disabled. To walk. Yeah. You. It's no vile, and the movie treats this as mm. this. Possibly this thing he needs to do mm. in order to gain self-respect. I'm like, no, he's disabled. He can't do that. Yeah, and like it's it's cruel the, uh, to, that she expects him mm. to, and the movie doesn't seem to understand that. The 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 movie what Darren Aronofsky uh, has failed to understand about his own movie. <laughs> Is that uh, is that it is about disconnection? Yeah, it is about depression. That it's about homophobia. That's a big part of this. Movie. Big part of it that he uh, does not want to engage with. Barely mentioned. No, like there, it's clearly an undercurrent, char- but it's barely mentioned. There's a character in this movie, uh, this a visiting missionary from the yeah. local church, and it's, it's eventually revealed that the the dead boyfriend uh, was part of the was same part denomination. Of, part of this denomination, which yeah. is this really very conservative, very homophobic sect, and you know he was mm. sort of like trying to escape that and this missionary comes in to sort of bring all of that that sort of bigotry back into his life by the way that actor unrecognizable he just sprouted yeah. uh young ty simpkins yeah. from uh insidious and jurassic world and iron man 3 yeah the, the kid yeah, yeah he just he just not, grew was, i did not recognize him like, it wasn't like until 18, the credits 19, that i realized yeah, it was yeah. that kid i'm like wow he grew up yeah so yeah, yeah. no no he's a an adult but uh he's good in it by the way the, the, oh, act, the acting is all good it's, but, it's not the actor's but, fault no um uh so all of those things are in the movie darren aronofsky seems to think that this is a film about obesity yes so he and it's so fucking embarrassing he does everything he can to film every bit of charlie's discomfort because of his size this is something that is so crucial mm. and i think it's very interesting to see how people are reacting to this movie mm. because the movie assumes mm. and you see over the course of the film the way that the drama plays out the overall revelation over the course of the film mm. is that wait a minute charlie is a person too that's the idea is that we're supposed to suddenly we're supposed to gradually appreciate that he has humanity uh, but um, I, but I, 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 hold on let me let me, let me finish my right. point and then refute okay, it all you no, like right. um the the idea is everyone in the in the movie sees him as a burden mm. or some sort of, of monster pit, object of pity yeah yeah. So, so, yeah exactly and he's a person with feelings mm. and so many characters over the film come to realize this, that it ultimately feels like the point of the movie mm. is that all of these characters who are projecting onto him become confronted with his humanity. If you, as an audience member, b- believe that he's a, a human being with dignity mm-hmm. uh, from the beginning, you're going to reject a lot of this movie yeah, because I, so I much of this movie is built on projecting the idea that he's gross. The soundtrack yeah. is depressing every time the, uh, he moves around and eats. They they they, they 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 put like horror movie music, like really yeah. noisy horror movie, like yeah. When whenever Charlie struggles with something, yeah, just walking around. There's uh, or, or when he like eats something. And mm. here's and here's the really telling thing. And this is the when I noticed they were doing this, mm. I got really angry at the movie because it's such <laughs> a cheap shot. Every time Charlie eats, and he eats several times throughout the movie. Mm. They play up the sound effects of mastication, chewing. 
Now, normally when you're watching a movie... To make it seem like that he's doing something really gross He's just eating. He might be eating a lot, but he's just eating. Mm -hmm. Like, there's this... You notice when most people do... There's one, like, low point where I understand why you might do it there. Maybe, but but I even... He does it throughout the movie. He does it throughout. There's no... There's no, like, single moment you point to. It's, like, literally the whole thing. He thinks that every time Charlie eats, we need to be reminded that what he is doing is gross. When you normally watch a movie and you see people eat... Uh There might be a bite or maybe a mild chewing in the background, but they're not trying to highlight, they're not trying to make it seem like you're inside his head right now. Mm. Like, if you took a bite of... I've seen a few movies like that, but the point of those scenes is to play up sort of the disgust of the act of eating, which yeah, is like maybe, kind of maybe, gross. Might, might be about something it, about yeah. cannibalism, or it might be talking about something about, like, mm. mass consumption or something like that, trying to make a larger point. But, like... When you hear someone else eating around you, un- unless they're really playing it up on purpose, you're probably not, like, hyper-focused on it and can hear every single squishy sound effect. Mm. He makes sure you do. That is a conscious decision. You do not do that by accident. Yeah. He wants you, if you weren't 100%, like, not on board with seeing fat people mm. as people, he wants to play into that. And try to get you there, or at the very least confirm what he assumes is your assumption, Mm. before, oh man, but he's actually nice. uh, Fuck you for that. That's not empathy. That's not empathy for his his characters. It's actually pity, and that's fucked up. I agree with you that that it's about pity. I don't think, I'm not reading from this movie that this was Darren Aronofsky trying to get an audience to accept the humanity of this guy. I think uh, it is because it's all filmed in like really low light and it's really Mm -hmm. drab. Uh, Everything's really kind of colorless. And I think it is about sort of sadness and disconnection. I'm not saying it's about sadness. I agree with that. I, I, I I only disagree on one small point. I I also hate this movie, by the way. Uh, But um, I I disagree that Darren Aronofsky is trying to sort of ram the point home that, um, that we're supposed to accept a fat guy as having humanity. Mm. Uh, I don't think that's the general thrust. I think, but what I think he is getting at is that, uh, and this is the embarrassing point that being that size is some sort of aberrant tragedy where, uh, and I'm, I'm, like this, and I'm this almost like, like almost like a side the movie itself is a sideshow. Look at him, yeah, and yeah, think of your and think of yourself. Exactly, it's more like yeah. it's it's not a, trying to elicit sympathy. It's more like a geek show, and that's yeah, that that's, that's the embarrassing worse. part. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the embarrassing part of this movie. Yeah, uh, and I'm I'm watching this and I'm thinking, even if uh, a filmmaker as cold and as mi- and as misanthropic as Michael Haneke. Yeah. were to move into the space and make this movie, he would bring more humanity yeah. to this this material. Uh, I was I watched this with my wife, and she suggested David Gordon Green making a movie. Sure, uh, making this like this play. It's based on a play. Mm-hmm. It takes place just in Charlie's apartment, so it, it feels very play like throughout sequences. I, I would like to suggest mm. that someone make this movie who is themselves, or at the very least, mm. you know, has been if they're depending on who where they are in their life, fat, or at least you know talk to like. People yeah. that size. There, there's a whole documentary show out there. Mm-hmm. I think it's called My 500 Pound Life or something like that. I'm which, not familiar with it. it. Yeah, it's a documentary show about pe- people that size. Yeah. And uh, and it deals with sort of the everyday concerns they have, mobility issues, sure. and also the psychology. Uh, you know, what... The just sort of the, the what has what goes through their minds when they're sort of yeah. when they consume yeah there's because there's, there's, uh, there's, there's a lot a, of there's a lot, there's of, a lot of different reasons why people yeah. are fat 
Yeah, and, and, uh, by and the it's way, not the same through all the people. They and, all, and, you know, and and to be clear, even the the nomenclature around hmm. uh, being a large person uh, isn't kind of universally accepted. I I'm a fat guy. Hmm. I'm 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 rather large. Um, I prefer the term fat. I don't see it as necessarily pejorative. It's just I, I'm a big guy. Yeah, I, I know I'm, I'm willing to accept that I use that I, with I think, no animosity whatsoever. I think some people might disagree word, with that. Yeah, I think fear of the word fat is actually an outcropping of like diet culture. So yeah. well, the one the uh, one I object to uh, is overweight. Overweight. It implies okay. that there is a specific line you're supposed to be at, and that's mm. not necessarily true. Yeah, yeah, and that's uh, not necessarily even healthy. There's there's, be, but that's that's a whole different story. I I yeah. I, I don't ever. I'm I'm never one to fat shame, but uh, and this movie has like all of this fat phobia in it, so I'm yes. I'm just sort of like bristling while I'm watching this movie. Well, it should. Here's the thing. Uh, I think if you again, if you are coming to this movie uh-huh. from a place where the message of this movie is unnecessary to you, mm-hmm. then watching the movie earnestly play out all of this fat phobia, either either assuming the audience believes that and playing into their hands at least initially uh-huh. before changing their perception or attempting to or whether they're uh, uh, trying to view Charlie and his situation through the lens of the other mostly not very good people in the movie you're still playing into a lot of very ugly ideas yeah. about fat people large mm-hmm. people people who uh, um, well frankly it's not treated very well no, no, in, no. In, in the media uh, and the like and just in, and just in polite society mm-hmm. there's this general sense of well I need to fix them you know they they, they clearly don't know yeah uh, I've had people like come up and it's like oh you know you, you should do something like, oh, really I had no idea thank you for that <laughs> thank you that's that's very helpful thank you thank you stranger uh, you've changed yeah. my life I, can, uh, I don't I can, know you yeah. but I need I know you need to be fixed mm-hmm. thanks that's a great way to start a conversation and the whale starts the conversation that way yeah in this yeah. very in this very offensive it's... way and I know some people who found this movie very well, deep and relevant but as someone who is fat and and mm. who sees fatness as just the thing it's a normal part of life for a lot of people um this movie uses a lot of the language either actual language or visual language or even sonic language that is intentionally hurtful yeah and it's often Uh, used that way even if darren arnowski somehow thought he was doing good he ended up i think doing a lot of harm and i'm not the only person you are not the only person who has watch this movie and taken away even if your intentions were good you made something very cruel uh i I think people are going to have different reactions to this because um i I read a review from uh and and a fat gay man and and he actually loved the compassionate view and and the performance of uh of brendan fraser uh, a friend of mine uh lost a lot of weight and understands a, a lot about sort of being that size. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and their relationship to the material was a little bit different. Everyone's relationship um, to their body yeah. is different. Their yeah, relationship well, to fatness is different. Yeah, relationship yeah. To the movies so different. I, I think, I think your, your mileage actually may vary on this, mm-hmm. uh, but know that it does play into some pretty hurtful fat phobic stereotypes, even while it purports to... Uh, give a lot of compassion to Charlie. I think Brendan Fraser, who's also struggled with his own body issues over Mm -hmm. the years, uh, 
gives a really great performance. Uh, I think in, he's in, good. Almost independent of the material. I, I think he's good. I think <laughs> right. what, I think Brendan Fraser, I think casting Brendan Fraser, a part of me wishes they'd cast someone who was actually, you know. It would have been nice if they cast yeah. somebody that size. Yeah, but, uh, I think that would have been an act of, of actual empathy. But um, I will say this for Brendan Fraser. I think he does a good job. But what I think they did when they cast Brendan Fraser, and I think if they did it on purpose, and I suspect they did, uh-huh. it was smart. Brendan Fraser may not be the greatest actor of his generation, but what he is, mm. maybe, of his generation, he's one of the most likable. Yeah, he's 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 like Tom Hanks. You cast him if you want somebody instantly charming and likable yeah, in your role. It's it's weird when you see him play against type. Like when he's, he's playing like an asshole in the movie Crash, the the the, oh, the Oscar the, winner, yeah, not yeah. the David Cronenberg. Um, but usually, you cast Brendan Fraser because you want people to go, "Oh, I like that guy." Yeah. Like, it's impossible. Like, even in a not particularly good movie. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not even... You, you can't even be mad at him for, like, that really shitty animal movie, Furry Vengeance. <laughs> like, he's just, I can like, be mad at that movie. I can be mad at the movie, yeah. but not him. Like, he, he, he comes all smelling mm-hmm. like a rose no matter what he does. And when he's in good material, or even just okay material, mm-hmm. he's delightful. A lot of the reason why The Mummy works... Is because Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz just have wonderful chemistry yeah. together. A lot of the reason, why, like Blast from the Past, that's a that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a sweet film. That's a that's delightful a film. film. Encino Man is a stupid yeah. movie. He really helps make that thing work. George of the Jungle, comedy classic, <laughs> legitimately very funny. It was uh, George of the Jungle that actually, uh, mm. and Brendan Fraser has spoken very frankly about yeah. this. Uh, that. Uh, he 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 is incredibly cut. He worked out for that. Oh, movie. he's, he's and, uh, yeah. He clearly did a lot. And, and they fetishize his body a lot in that. Movie. Yeah, he's he's uh, ogled by the by the camera by the characters. Yeah, uh, and evidently the getting himself in that shape uh, just did did a, did a number on his brain. On like he, yeah. it just was affecting his mind. Sure. He felt like he had to stay that way. It was giving him a sort of a complex. Yeah. Uh, That's when he, and when he, he did the mummy a few years after that, and he felt he had to do like these dangerous sort of stunt things, and he was actually hurting himself. Yeah. So uh, he, he's struggled with a lot of bodily issues, and that yeah. might be something that drew him to something like the whale. And perhaps, but what I think Brendan Fraser is doing in the whale mm. is being Brendan Fraser. <laughs> I, I really do, and I don't mean this as an insult. I'm, I'm not shortchanging his performance. I think he's, uh. he's very, very good. But I think. What they got him to do is, you look at Brendan Fraser, you look at his eyes. He's got these wonderful, mm. like these, these the, the eyes of like, of like a fawn. You know, like, like there's like Bambi. Like he just, <laughs> you look at him and you go, oh, you look nice. Like he just, there's something about him. He's just got this actorly quality, his movie star quality. Did you see him in uh, the, mm. where he plays, he plays a robot in some superhero show? Oh, it was, um... Doom Patrol. I haven't seen Doom it. I heard Patrol, it was good. Okay. Yeah, I, I hear, I hear he's really good in it. I haven't seen it. Um, you get Brendan Fraser. You get a character who is instantly sympathetic and likable. Uh, you you immediately go, I like that guy. Okay. He's cool. <laughs> so you put him in a movie, and I feel like Darren Aronofsky may have overplayed his hand because, like, listen, everyone's going to like him. Mm. So we need to play up extra hard how depressing this is. We need to play it like a horror movie. They they're playing against Brendan Fraser. Like Brendan Fraser is like fighting Darren Aronofsky for the soul of this movie. Uh-huh. 
And I think that's a bad way to, to make a film. <laughs> uh, I, so I it's agree. Mani- but, manipulative. And, uh, I, I, but here's the thing. I think everyone in the movie is good. I think poor Sadie Sink, who plays his daughter. Has, has to play the supervillain character. Clearly yeah. a talented character. But she plays this just this really cruel, mean person. And like they, they say a few times, Hong Chao plays a character. She's, she's his best friend. And she's also like his caregiver. Mm. Um, uh, she's Hong, a, Hong Chao was also in the menu. And I'm... Yeah. Um, 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 I'm a big fan of hers now. She's great. Yeah. She's great. She, she, ever since you're in Driveway, she's wonderful in that movie. Um, brilliant actress. The, the, nothing but respect. Um, she she has a line about how... She, the, the girl's a teenager. Everyone's awful when you're a teenager. Mm. I mean, to varied extents, sure. But like that, no, it's kind of true. That's she, when you are awful. She, she's not like casually insensitive the exactly. way a teenager is. That's she's like deliberately mean. The movie is trying to create this idea... That what Sadie Sink specifically does over the course of the film, which is, and I'm not even going to go into great detail, but if you watch the movie, there are specific actions that she takes, conscious choices, hmm. that are not only dangerous, I would argue borderline unforgivable in oh, no, some regards. These are, these are incredibly unforgivable things I was does. I was being kind, and I think that's part of the problem. The movie suggests that he, he because he's her father and he hasn't seen her for a long time, he's willing to forgive her anything, and that this hmm. is somehow noble. And it's like, no, and I think there's a point the movie makes at one point, which is that cruelty can be kind. There's oh. a, she does a thing, and ostensibly it, she does it for cruel reasons, but it ha- ends up either oh, backfiring, yeah. and there's it just, a, it, the, it just backfires on her. And yeah, I, it I ends think, up not being cruel by accident. Well, I, I and, think uh, the, the way I saw that thing uh, in, in this movie was... Um, that Charlie Brendan Fraser's character, mm-hmm. uh, w- w- he was like so far gone, yeah, in like sort of his own pit of despair that yeah. he was willing to take, like he was kind of blinding himself to his own daughter's cruelty. I would argue that there's a bit at the very end of the movie yeah. which suggests, maybe it doesn't make it abundantly clear, but I think it suggests that the movie ultimately sides with Charlie and thinks that she's not a not being a terrible person. No, but. Much we, entirely by we, that, we, we yeah. can disagree on that. We yeah. can disagree on that. But regardless, I think that there is definitely one way of looking at the movie that the movie allows that you have to be cruel to be kind, or you can be cruel to be kind. And I would argue that that's cruelty. Mm. No, cruelty. You have to be cruel to be cruel. That's, yeah, that's like the, actual the, it's the idea is that the ends might justify the means, and that's not a great start to any anything. Yeah, really. Um. So, in any case, I think it's an incredibly misguided film. I think the execution yeah, it, it, it of it does, is awful. It doesn't understand the, its own material. I can imagine someone else doing better work with this material mm-hmm. as a director. Uh, I'm not entirely convinced it's great material, but maybe. Yeah, there's there's someone else that have a radically different yeah, the, take. The screenplay was written by the, the playwright who yeah, wrote the original I, play. I, again, I, I, I haven't seen the play. Uh I found it to be a very cruel picture, mm-hmm. and I know it's trying not to be, or at least ostensibly it is. Yeah, and I don't think that's an excuse. I don't think you if you try to do so, if you try to do something sensitive, and a lot of people who are in the position mm-hmm. that to correct you <laughs> to correct you yeah. to actually say, listen, I know what it's like to be very fat. Mm-hmm. And to see how people treat you and what life is like for that, and the the things you did in the movie weren't sensitive to me or my life or the people that I know. It was ultimately very, very hurtful. I, I don't think we can disregard that. I know some people, again, 
have had these experiences and connected to the film favorably. So mm. I, I, it's not universal, nor nor <coughs> would it be. Mm. And we can't ignore those voices either. But I'm very, very eager to listen to, to people on this film, and I hope everyone else is too, because yeah. it's it's a lot of people are seem very happy to mm. ignore the naysayers on this one. I think the naysayers have a lot of incredibly no, valid no, I, points, I, not just because I am one. Uh it's it's just in just on an artistic level i think it misunderstands yeah. the material and yeah. uh even 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 uh putting the cruelty aside i think yeah. it's a not a very well made picture yeah uh you know all, all of aronofsky's artistry is there his camera work and his cinematography mm. and you know the the music itself is fine but i think he uses his music incredibly badly yeah i think he is uh not engaging with the material correctly i think uh, uh, so I'm, I'm just sort of walking away from this uh disappointed in addition to being disgusted i think i think there's a there's a school of thought i've seen amongst uh, some people not 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 a lot but some that it's impossible to call a movie bad if it's competent like competency is is the the watermark between between good or at least just okay and bad and i don't think that's true I think it is possible well, to be incredibly true, yeah. talented. I think it's impossible to know exactly what you're doing and do the wrong thing. Mm. To make a bad movie well. Oh. And in some cases that can be actually kind of dangerous. Because what you could be doing is obfuscating really troubling ideas. Or really ugly views. Mm. Uh, behind a veneer of respectability. And I... I think the whale is kind of on the edge of that. I don't know if that's... It, it's not... I wouldn't call it an evil movie, per se, but I think it is uh, uh, it, it, extremely misguided and yeah. ultimately very hurtful. So... In, in a yeah. way, in a way, I think it didn't intend, but... Yeah, I hope it didn't is, intend, yeah. but regardless, that, that I think that's irrelevant, though. I think yeah. if you hurt somebody and you didn't intend to, and I would hope you didn't, and they say, hey, you hurt me, you don't get to say, well, I didn't mean to, so it's fine. Mm. No, you say is, oh, I didn't realize what I had done was hurtful. And I apologize. And I apologize, mm. and I and I will endeavor not to do that in the future, because I don't want to do that. Mm. And I think filmmaking can be the same way sometimes, where we, we get so eager to defend the idea that we made a conscious choice and we tried to do something, that we ignore the, the occasions, at least... In which we really whiff it and don't just make like a not particularly good movie, but make a hurtful film. Mm. And that's important that we listen. So yeah. anyway, um, tell me about let's 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 shift gears and let's talk about something fun. All right. Uh, tell me about a wounded fawn. Uh, something fun. <laughs> oh boy, so I've you want to talk little, about the serial killer movie. I've um, heard a few things about this. I haven't seen this one. Oh, uh, this is a new film on Shudder. Um Shudder, by the way, uh it, Although they, too, along with all the other streaming services, are pretty much struggling. I know a lot of people mm. were laid off at Shutter recently. Yeah. Still doing great work. One of the better streaming services out there. They're really they're really good at curating their mm. horror movie library, which is mostly what they have. It's mostly horror movies. Some thrillers, a couple of action sci-fi things, mm. but it's all kind of related to horror. But lately, again, they're, they're not all winners, but they mm. have had a pretty damn good track record mm. of releasing they release a, a new film almost every week almost every week at least a few times a month they release a brand new movie that they have acquired through festivals or mm. internationally and they they're they're the ones distributing it and they've got good taste 
Yeah, the people running it know no horror and they know what yeah. what to do. Like seriously, many <clears throat> film, many great <throat> horror movies this year ended up coming directly or eventually exclusively to Shutter. Yeah, their track record is pretty solid. So if Shutter mm. puts out a movie. I'm interested whether or not mm-hmm. I have the time to see every single one. Yeah, I'm interested. I, I, I trust what they do. They've put out some yeah. stickers, but yeah, yeah they, they, they can't be winners. But yeah, uh, this uh, a wounded phone is a new film from a director named Travis Stevens who did a film called Jacob's Wife mm. uh, last year. Uh, did you? It was the one. It was a vampire film with Barbara Crampton and Larry Fessenden. I missed that, but he did uh, another movie I really liked. Called, let me get it right. It was, uh, I think, Woman on the Third Floor? Uh, Girl on the Third Floor. Girl on the Third Floor, I think it was Girl on the that's Third the guy, Floor. That's the yeah. same director. Though. Yeah, that's a very creepy haunted house movie. I think I think it overplays the ending a smidge, but mm-hmm. uh, CM Punk, uh, who I believe was a wrestler, uh-huh. um, he plays a guy who is moving into a house and it's a real fixer-upper. And... <laughs> It, every time he like punches into a wall, it feels like it's alive. Like, it bleeds, <laughs> but like it bleeds like weird fluids that like aren't blood, oh, and like weird. It's a very strange film, and the uh, the more it reveals what's actually going on, the the less interesting it is. But it never completely loses you. Okay. But like it's a very very creepy take on the haunted house film for most of its running time, and yeah. I really liked it a lot. Um. A Wounded Fawn is uh, very much into art curation and ancient Greek mythology. Oh, so and, this is for you. And I love that about it. <laughs> yes. Um, in a cold open, we see uh, a guy who uh, has lost an auction for a very specific statue of the Furies. Okay. Guess what's going to be a heavy symbol in this movie? Auctioneering. Uh, yes, auctioneering. <laughs> Fury, specifically the Fury of Women. Okay. Uh, but yeah, this guy... Uh, this, Serial killer guy named Josh Rubin. He loses this auction. He breaks into the woman's apartment. He sees a vision of this weird demonic owl mm. uh, that's sort of like like a six foot tall demonic owl, sort of stalking around, and like it it's sort of like psychically urging him to kill. It's like yeah. sort of his his disorder personified. Yeah, it's his. Uh, yeah. Then we cut to a character named Meredith. She's played by an actress named Sarah Lind, and. Uh, very much like in the movie Fresh, if you saw it earlier, hmm. he they've been dating for a while, and she has now finally trusted him enough to go on sort of like a romantic getaway. We oh. know she's in danger, and we're waiting for her to figure out that this guy is a serial killer. Yeah. Uh, the first half of this movie, maybe even the first hour, because it's only a 90-minute film, Pretty uh, good, creepy, but pretty straightforward serial killer stuff. Okay. Uh, she finds out some clues... He starts stalking her around. He has all these weird sort of visions of this owl monster. Uh, and, you know, pretty pretty effective thriller. And then something changes about two-thirds of the way through, and it goes full-bore surrealist theater. Ooh. Where uh, all of these various Greek deities begin appearing in the movie and influencing the action. Very much they, the way they would in something like The Iliad. Um, oh. If you remember that uh, Wolfgang Peterson's movie Troy, oh yes, uh, yes that, which, I do. which was the, this sort of war epic version of the Iliad. Yeah, the Iliad. The Iliad is the one about sort of the, the the battle of of Troy. Helen of Troy the, the tr- the runs war, yeah. off with uh, Paris. Yeah, Paris. And uh, well, her her, <clears throat> the, her former husband, I think, or fiance. I don't remember if they were married or not. They. The, uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, he comes to get her back, and they fight a war for many years, and it's really gigantic. And in the book, 
<laughs> in the original poem. In yeah. the original story, uh, the the Greek gods, the pantheon, oh. are active participants. They're active. Yeah, they're characters. down there on the battlefield. Yeah. They have dialogue with the characters, yeah. and that's a big part of the Iliad. Is yeah. that it's. It, it's part of this divine experience, this war, and yeah. how uh, the gods are actually very uh, everyday parts of the world. Yeah. Uh, and then when they made Troy, they, they took decided, all that out. They took all of the gods out and they made it uh, like a secular version of Troy. It's like you're kind of missing the point of the story when you yeah. take the gods out of it. Yeah, it got a lot less interesting. They still tried to, like, well, they turned play it into it like, up. this action movie. Well, and then parts and then... of it don't really work anymore. Like, um, um, uh, Achilles, hmm. played by Brad Pitt in the movie, is this incredible warrior. And if you recall from the original myth, uh, Achilles's mother was worried that her son would die someday. You know, like parents, hmm. uh, and she like put him in a pool. It was the River Styx. It was River Styx. You yeah. dipped him in the River Styx, holding him by his heel, we're yeah. holding him by his heel. So every part where the water hit him would be invulnerable. It would be impossible to kill him by stabbing whatever anywhere ex- hmm. except. His heel. That was the one part that didn't get dipped in the River Styx. Now, if I were her, I would have dipped him in the River Styx. Rolled him around a little bit. Him, well, just pull him out a bit. And then just dip the heel. Just real quick. Just boop. Done. Don't even have to stay another 30 seconds. It's all good. And then whatever. She, she got a little distracted. And kind of so, set herself up for disaster. So, in the, so pa- in the Paris takes an arrow at some point in, yeah. in the Iliad. Yeah. Spoilers for the Iliad. Yes, yeah, uh, three thousand year old book. <laughs> so, but the, the anyway, the whole point is in the in the story of the Iliad when the, this is why we call it an Achilles heel. There's the only place where he could be defeated. Mm-hmm. So it's this big dramatic moment, and it has to do with like mystical mythology shit. Mm. And in 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 Troy, the Wolfgang Peterson movie, he just gets shot in the heel. It's not as dramatic if you yeah. remove the backstory. It actually looks kind of ridiculous yeah. that this is the thing that takes him out. So uh, I, I appreciate that in a wounded fawn, there's yeah. a lot of this uh, talk and a lot of uh, the 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 clue that gives uh, the main character sort of a hint that something is going wrong is that she was able to accurately. Uh, appraise a, a, a piece of ancient sculpture. Right. So uh, there's there's a few. Uh, I wish they'd gone like into like nerdier details about sort of the history of these sculptures because I like that kind of shit. Sure. Uh, nobody does though, so they don't put that kind of thing in a movie. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I like that. Uh, not only was that part of it, but also that you know the symbol symbolism of the Furies, these three women, who are sort of carrying the wrath of womankind. Yeah. And directing it at a serial killer, and serial killers uh, rather infamously tend to target women, or uh, men, men who target women. Often are, yes. Yeah, not, like, not exclusively, but yeah, that's the thing. Like, like 90% of the time. <laughs> I don't have the figures on that, but it sure does seem like a whole hell of a lot. Yeah, if, if, uh, yeah. I'm not like a deep-cut serial killer guy, but I've mm. seen enough of... of you know, Cer- those, certainly the stories you hear most stories, often yeah. are, are, with the few noteworthy yeah. exceptions, tend to be men. Yeah, uh, Yeah. That's why um, um, Eileen Warnos, yeah. uh, the, the subject of the movie Monster, um, mm. was considered such an aberration. She's yeah. a, a serial killer, but women aren't serial killers. Yeah, it's well, weird. This is what we're going to be sexist about? Yeah. <laughs> like this? <laughs> like, <laughs> what? Really? Anyway. Uh, I saw Monster and I saw two documentaries about Eileen Warnos, so I know a lot yeah. about her. Yeah. Uh, maybe I'm a serial killer guy. Yeah. Um, 
I, I, true crime is fascinating. It I, is fascinating. It's morbidly and, fascinating, and I personally and I of, have a very uh, limited capacity for it. Yeah, like I can only handle so much before I just get depressed, right. and I don't want to watch anymore. But I get it. It's this. Yeah, it's, there's there's a a, a call know. to end stories about uh, serial killers because they tend to uh, glorify these people. They can victimize other people. Uh, they can, but you know, I also understand why we keep going back. They're the aberrations. They're the yeah. the, the outsiders. The, the, These criminals are fascinating. There's this weird thing though, where we 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 tell stories about people who are outside the norm. Yeah, ostensibly because well, that's not normal. It's there, ergo, it's interesting. Yeah, that's, that's that's just on a basic. It just it shows a yeah. very basic dissatisfaction with society and, and, and that, civilization. And, it's malcontent. And and, and yeah. serial killers is just one extreme of that. It could just be people with an unusual job, just mm. something that isn't the typical human experience. Yeah. We want to know what that's like because most people in the audience aren't going to know what that's like. Yeah. So whether it's scary or reassuring or just interesting, uh, doesn't matter. But the the irony is that if these things become trendy. And we make a lot of stories about mm. it. All of a sudden, it actually seems kind of normal, mm. and you end up kind of normalizing it, and you end up making it, especially in a case like serial killers, where that's bad, and yeah. we don't want to downplay how bad it is. Right. You end up making it seem like just another thing, mm. and then you have people like dressing their kids up as Jeffrey Dahmer for Halloween, like they did this year, right. and uh, which I'm sure didn't happen a lot. But that shouldn't happen once. That's that's very tasteless. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, you know? it, the the statute of limitations is it up. You want you want to be Lizzie Borden? Go for it. Yeah, I don't think the statute of limitations is up for Jeffrey Dahmer. No, not yet. No, no it's, it's far too recent. Really recent, and and Jeffrey Dahmer. You know, what, I didn't want to get into it. It's a whole right. thing. Uh, anyway, we're off topic. Uh, yeah. Just, but I I do appreciate though that uh, a wounded fawn is actually taking a little bit of that notion into account, mm-hmm. where uh, how the serial killers tend to attack women. Yeah. Uh, and. The movie actually takes doesn't just take the character to task by mm. getting some sort of like uh, bloody revenge that can be plenty cathartic, sure, but it can also be kind of cheap. Uh, yeah, and, it's and a little straightforward. A, yeah, yeah. Um, but this one actually kind of ta- like actually confronts him and has a conversation. There's okay. a scene in this movie where one of the Furies just sort of says, "I'm going to ask you some questions and you need to answer me honestly," ah. and, and I love that. Like, a, and it's yeah. a feel like wearing the the Greek tragedy mask and all this wild stuff. Yeah, I'm more interested in that when it comes to uh, you've you've talked about this a lot uh-huh. about how there's so many stories in film, television, comics, whatever that are about vengeance. Yeah, not not just wanting to see someone else's comeuppance mm. because they wronged you or someone else in some way but actively but bl- seeking blood it out. revenge yeah. like actively seeking it out and doing like real count of monte cristo shit and this is actually exactly what kind of thing i'm talking about this kind of seeking out revenge on someone in a very john wick kind of way most people don't do that no that's a very rare type of occurrence in real life which and so it seems interesting when you put it in a movie, but then so many movies do it that it becomes kind of passe. Yeah, you know. So that kind of vengeance yeah, think- is passe. I want to see people. I don't want to see like. You want to see someone tortured to death. I don't want to see someone tortured to death. I want to see someone understand their that their actions hurt people and actually feel it. Yeah, I want someone to actually come to the realization, get out of their own head. And some people aren't capable of this, but I would like to see someone realize how much harm they've done. Yeah. There's a, there's a, one one of my favorite, um, this is going to sound so stupid, but uh, one of my favorite superpowers 
in all comics is a thing Ghost Rider does. He's got a thing called a penance stare. <laughs> it's, it's a terrible name. But, uh, but, but dramatically, it's a great idea. Because yeah. he doesn't just kill people. Well, he, finds who does, yeah. he, he, he finds someone who's, who's hurt people, who've done wrong things. And you look into the eyes of this demon who looks like a flaming skeleton. Hmm. And when you look into his eyes... All the hurt that you've caused other people, you feel. And if you've hurt other people a lot, like no one goes through their life without at least accidentally hurting people. Like it's impossible. Life is complicated. But if you really hurt people and you all of a sudden you feel it all yourself, that's way more cathartic to me as a premise. Than than just killing someone. Than just killing someone. Because then they're dead. What have they learned? And what have you learned? Not a goddamn fucking thing. It's... Anyway, it's a whole thing. Anyway, but uh, wounded fun, wounded, wounded fun. Uh, it's also <laughs> I can get back to the the movie. <laughs> um, it's also quite stylish. Uh, it's one of those movies where they try to make it look a little bit grindhousey by adding like fake uh, film scratches. Oh yeah, it, it's not like super pervasive. It's not like all throughout. They're not like sort of warping the sound, but they're they're trying to evoke sort of like a. Mm-hmm. A '70s Giallo vibe, a little bit. My my, and, my uh, standard for that is if you could see the pattern and the scratches, they did it wrong. I I, I wasn't looking for that, but you can see like little. Scratches Sometimes you can just see the same line go yeah, through they, like they, the uh, right edge of the frame over and over again, which means that they're just kind of doing a using a, of using scratches, a very yeah. short loop, and yeah. that ruins it for me. That ruins that aesthetic. Yeah, so if you're yeah. at home and you're thinking, I want to do this in a short film. Make sure you can't actually, tell the, Actually scratch the film if you can. That's but, the best uh, yeah. thing to do. Print it out on film. Just put it on the ground. Step on it a couple times. Step on it a couple yeah. of times. Scratch it a little bit on the ground. Don't go nuts. You want to be able to see it. But like just actual chaos mm. is so much better than like a little the loop you'll chaos, get with yeah. After Effects. Yeah. Um, when, uh, when we see monsters in this movie. Ooh, there are sea monsters? When we see monsters. Oh. I already said there's an owl monster. You're not excited by that? I was, uh, and now, then I was excited for the sea monster. No, there's no, there are no sea monsters. Well, I guess uh, you can't have everything. But the uh, there's there's a little bit of um, I like to think it's deliberate cheapness. This right. is clearly a very low budget movie because mm. it's you know one location, mostly just one location. Uh, you know, sort of like running around through the woods. But there, I think it, it has that sort of. Um, that appeal of somebody who's like kids running around making a movie in the woods kind of aesthetic. Yeah. Like and but kids who actually have like DIY. Pr- pretty good resources and a lot of imagination. Yeah. So it actually is really effective as a horror movie, even if you can see maybe some of the cheapness in the costumes or some weird. So you're saying things. this is the horror movie the kid from the Fablemans would have made. I wish the kid from the Fablemans was into horror. <laughs> I know. And not like war pictures. He made a mummy. He made one mummy movie as a kid. Uh, no, I suppose so. Yeah. It's all about like guns and battle for him though. Nah, I know. Well, Again, in the weeds, sorry. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> you're saying it's you're saying it's the aesthetic is good. The aesthetic is good. It's okay. it's it's low budget, it's cheap, but it works really well with the resources it has. That's cool. Alright, we have one more movie. Uh and this one is well it's got an imprimatur. This isn't just Pinocchio. This is Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, which I think is a little rude to his co-director, Mark Gustafson, 
who I feel, I feel like should at least be Guillermo del Toro yeah. and Mark Gustafson's well, Pinocchio. I, I remember um, when okay. The Nightmare Before Christmas was released, it was credited as Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah. He wrote the, he did write the story and it's, yeah. I, 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 that the screenplay was based on. Yeah. But he didn't write the screenplay. He acted as producer and he designed it. And he, like, he, didn't, he didn't get a screenwriting credit at all? No, he, it's based on a book by. Okay. That was his credit. And, At the very least, he wrote the book. He wrote the book. Guillermo del Toro uh, did not write the, the book Pinocchio. And, and he, he designed all the characters. They're based on his drawings. Yeah. Uh, and, but Henry Selick yeah. directed the movie. Yeah. Henry Selick, who recently did Wendell and Wild. He also did uh, James and the Giant Peach and Coraline. Coraline and, yeah. and Monkey uh, Bone, don't forget. He did the Brendan animated, Fraser. animated sequences as Monkey Bone. He did the animated animals yeah. in uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, The Life Aquatic. Didn't he do... I thought he also did the live-action Monkey Mumbarts. No, I think he just did the animated portion. No, it's all him. Oh, it's all him. Okay. All him. Yeah. All right. The, the animated portions are, are wild designs. That's, That's not a, a great movie, film. but uh, it's, it's I like un- all the weird stuff. I it. appreciate how weird it is. Yeah. Respect for that. I remember there was a, a, a scene in Monkey Bone where Brendan Fraser was sitting down just sort of depressed in the afterlife. He's dead. Yeah. Or I guess his, his, his body has been taken he's over. Comatose. And he's comatose, but his, his spirit is like in, in he, the death he's, realm. He's, he's, a, he's a cartoonist or a, or a comic book artist, mm. and his creation is this very mischievous... Uh, monkey named Monkey Bone. Mm. And he is in a coma and he's inside his own head and his creation is so powerful. His imagination is so powerful that his creation has a mind of its own and it wakes up in his body yeah. instead of him. Yeah, so he he's in yeah. he's in the afterworld which is this weird sort of surreal carnival thing. Yeah. And there's all these creatures around and he's just sort of sitting there feeling sorry for himself and like a Hindu deity that's like really glowing and has multiple faces and multiple arms sort of drifts into frame and it's like holy shit God has arrived <laughs> and it sort of like turns to him and says hello hands him a letter and then walks off. It was the mail delivery <laughs> thing. Just like just incidentally awe-inspiring. Yeah, it's like holy kudos. Yeah. Kudos to how weird that film is. Seriously, it's not a good film, but uh, it's 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 definitely interesting. Kudos but uh, this is a stop motion yeah. animated feature. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was done with. Um, they're made to look like wood, but they're actually rubberized maquettes. Yeah. So it's the kind of stop motion that you might have seen in something like Corpse Bride, where the. Uh, all of the facial features are being manipulated and they're not sort of like removing faceplates or heads. Yeah. Uh, giving the characters sort of a rubbery look to it. Yeah. Uh, it's a little bit distracting, actually. Um, oh, really? I, I find stop motion is best when it has that kind of jittery quality to mm. it. I have a preference, but uh, yeah. I, I think this one I think this one works fine. Yeah, I, I like it when you can kind of see the thumbprints a little bit. Like, I appreciate that, that but yeah. I, I think this one looks nice. Um, mm. But uh, but yeah, this is an adaptation of Pinocchio. Pinocchio is in the public domain. You can do anything you want to Pinocchio, so long as you don't do exactly what Disney did, because it owns that exact design of Pinocchio. Right. So there's there are limitations to the public domain, but. Yeah. Um, Pinocchio, and I'm not an expert in Pinocchio. Uh, Pinocchio was one of my favorite movies growing up. I think it was the first animated movie I saw in a theater uh-huh. when they re-released it in like 84, 85. And I had this very vivid memory of watching Pinocchio in a theater. And there was this wonderful theater we used to have in Pasadena. It was called The Pacific. And it had the biggest screen in town. And it had this weird, unique feature that I've really never seen in any other movie theater where you go to most movie theaters and... It's like an airplane. There's like the the seats in the center, and then there's two aisles, and then there's seats on either side a lot of the time. Uh, but here it's like it's just really, really wide. It was only like like ten aisles, but the aisles were like super duper wide. Mm. So you're watching it in like this just the sea of people 
There's no aisles in the middle. It's just all one giant mass. Very weird. But it was a distinct experience, and it's just very overwhelming. And the screen was really big for the time. Monstro. The whale. The whale, which is the centerpiece of the end of the movie. Geppetto is famously swallowed by Monstro. He's out looking for Pinocchio. Pinocchio is lost. And then he gets, Geppetto gets swallowed by Monstro, and Pinocchio has to find him and save him. The sense of scale on Monstro the Whale in that animated movie is maybe the most terrifying thing I've ever seen in a film. And Monstro to this day, even if I watch it on my laptop, scares the living shit out of me. <laughs> just, he's just, nothing should be that huge and that pissed off. Like it's worse that he's angry. It's like God is mad at you. Like that's that's the vibe I get from Monster. It scares the shit out of me. Anyway, great movie. But so, Disney is a, a whale in an upcoming movie that, that yeah. has that similar sense of scale. There's a lot of whales this yeah. year. Have you noticed that? It, ignoring the Darren Aronofsky film, which is is a metaphor. They talk about Moby Dick a lot in that movie. Um, Avatar, space whales. Yeah, <laughs> whales, whales on another planet. It's in the movie. Uh, Inuo has a wonderful song about a whale. That's, that's a great fucking movie. Chippendale Rescue Rangers has a rap about a whale. Yep, and I listened to that. We listened to that in the car on the as way. soon as we got out of the movie uh, Avatar. Of Avatar, the way of water. <laughs> yeah, got it stuck in my head the entire fucking film. Well, there was and, another and one, uh, too. Well, and there's Pinocchio. And there's Pinocchio. There's, uh, there were three Pinocchios. That's right. There's, <laughs> there's a whole bunch of whales this year. I don't know why. Anyway, um... Where was I going with this? So, so anyway, Disney sanded off the edges of Pinocchio because Pinocchio, as originally written, was a lot less like the heartwarming story about a little boy who wanted to become real. That was Disney's emphasis. Yeah. Pinocchio, in the original story... Car- Carlo Collodi is the name of the, uh, yeah. the original author. The, the character of Pinocchio, the little wooden boy who comes to life, is an asshole. Well, he's, he's, he's a little a little kid with no moral compass. Well, he's, he's not just a little kid with no moral compass. He is, he's selfish. Mm. He's vain. He does all of these things, and they're not nice things. He is not a good little boy. He's actually uh, um, very. He's very much an agent of chaos, and a lot of the adventures that he winds up in over the course of the original stories are much more about social satire than they are about coming of age. Yeah. Uh, ironically, the movie that I think understood this a little better than most other Pinocchio movies, which again adapted to your to your liking, but uh, it's a bad movie. But Roberto Benigni's Pinocchio, oh, that movie's nuts! It's it's terrible, nuts, but yeah, it understood it's... that Pinocchio is an episodic uh, adventure in which yeah, every you, episode is social commentary. Did you see the Italian version from two years ago? Uh, oh, the one where uh, Benigni plays Geppetto in this one. Yeah, I didn't. That that's a really good version. Oh, that's uh, good because that one had like actually like it takes place in this kind of surreal world of animal people. Oh, okay. Uh, like, like the Disney version has animal people in it. And sure. Disney, because it's so edgeless, that just sort of feels like a natural outcropping of this And world. then there's it's a fox animal. guy over there's, there. There's We're not talking, even going to yeah, talk about Talking fox yeah. man. Um, feels really weird in the Zemeckis film when they do yeah. the CGI animal people. Yeah, it doesn't make, it doesn't uh, track in that one But in, in that Italian yeah. rendition, they put people in makeup and it's mm. really impressive. I've got that's an cool. Academy Award nomination to makeup. And, oh, that's uh, right forgot about that yeah yeah and and i think that one sort of plays into that like lewis carroll uh sort of fable like quality of pinocchio i feel like that's the vibe guillermo del toro is sort of shooting for Mm -hmm. but i think after a while he loses interest in doing a straight rendition and goes into his own interest he's he he i'll say this for this pinocchio 
Guillermo del Toro doesn't take the easy road out in this adaptation. He swings through the fences and makes some choices. Mm. The biggest choice that Guillermo del Toro makes, and I think this one really has a gigantic impact on the film, because a couple of things, he he moves it up in time uh, so that it takes place in Mussolini's Italy, yeah, which is a time of, of fascism, and that's a, that's a topic that Guillermo del Toro has revisited multiple times. Mm. Um, so that's a very particular backdrop. Against which to play this, and there are elements of it where, like, oh, there's a, there's like a fascist in town. He sees that there's a little wooden boy, and he's like, "My God, we can create a race soldier, of super yeah. soldiers!" And I'm like, "Okay, now you're just ripping off Puppet Master Three, because that is the plot of Puppet Master Three right there. There's a kindly old puppet master, uh, puppet puppeteer. He's making puppet shows, and his puppet shows are actually critical of the fascist regime, and then the Nazis get pissed off about it, and they burn him down. I think they kill his wife, and he brings his puppets to life to exact revenge. On the Nazis. On the Nazis. Well, the Nazis are trying to figure out how he did this so they can make super soldiers out of the puppets. It's not exactly what Del Toro does, but I'll bet Del Toro's seen it. (laughs) I would be shocked if he hadn't seen it. First of all, uh, you... I think you can skip the first Puppet Master, but see Pup Ma- Puppet Master 2 and 3. Those are actually, like, those legitimately entertaining movies. Those are very weird films. Yeah. They're very weird, but, you know, yeah. they're effective. Good stop uh, motion in them, too. Like you you can cool skip animation. parts uh, 4 through, I think they're up to, like, 13 or 14 You can skip this all point. except yeah. 2 and 3. <laughs> 2 and 3 are worth watching. Yeah. 1 yeah. is okay. It's not great, but it's okay. If you want to see it, see it. You can uh, skip yeah. it and go to 2 and 3 if you want. Those are the good ones. William Will Hickey plays the puppet master in the first one. Yes, very briefly, but yes. Yeah. And, who, and then, who, Cor- and then uh, Corey Feldman plays the puppet master in Puppet Master vs. Demonic, Demonic Toys. Toys and yeah. in that one, all they do is they put a little little like powder in his hair. And it's very clearly added like at the last second by some like PA. <laughs> to just make him tussling look a older, it. Yeah. Because he's Corey Feldman. <laughs> he doesn't age. He's just one of those guys who always looks young. And it's just like, I, he's, he's, he's probably age appropriate. He's like 54 but now. But he's, yeah. he's age appropriate, but he doesn't look it. So they, in order to make him look like an old guy, they had to just cheaply tossed talc in his hair. It's ridiculous. I, I would have loved if uh, Guillermo del Toro had had the gall to include Andre Toulon oh, in his Pinocchio movie. That would have been so cool. It would have been so cool. Uh, anyway, no, but, uh, so he, he moves it up to Fascist Italy, and the he, biggest, biggest change is, in the original stories, as I understand it, uh, Geppetto is a childless old man. Yeah. And he would he's, like a son. And he's lonely. And, and he he's lonely and he wants a father. son. And he wishes for a son. And uh, a star in heaven... Mm. Uh, takes pity on him and allows him to turn one of his puppets to life. Right. He's, um, a, he's a toy maker. He makes yeah. He's a woodworker. Yeah. It's it's in in concept anyway. It's sweet. Um, in this version, he goes full up, and he, well, and, and he the, wants you to. He wants a to that, kill your your heart in like the yeah. first five minutes. And this is a notion that uh, Zemeckis also did in his update. The idea uh, that yeah. Geppetto uh, didn't just want a little child because he wanted to be a father. He wanted a child to replace a dead child. Yeah. But whereas Zemeckis made that academic, he's just an old man and his son died. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Del Toro's version, we meet Geppetto and his son. And, and his we son spend time alive, with them. Yeah. And it's very, very sweet. And they love each other. And he, tell, he reads some stories at night. Some of those stories will be important later. There's a part where, like, he's telling him a story about how, yes, if you lie, your nose will grow. And that's why all liars, according to Geppetto in this movie, have big noses. And I'm like, oh, we're oh, we're going to interrogate that, right? Because that's a weird fucked up thing to say in this particular historical context. No. We're not going to talk no, about they, that. They they and indeed, that the main villain of the movie has a big nose and is the big liar. And we're just not going to. Wow, that slipped through, didn't it? 
didn't particularly care for that part. But anyway, um, I'm hoping that's an oversight because that's some weird fucking shit right there. Uh, but in any case, tragedy strikes and Geppetto's son dies in a very dramatic fashion. A dramatic fashion. Yeah. Uh- he he goes into a church where Geppetto has been working on the crucifix uh, because he's, he's a woodworker in this one as yeah. well, and uh, the church gets blown up in an errant World War One bombing. Yeah. So uh, so there's like some parallels to the Devil's Backbone as well, which Indeed. is uh, also about a, a child's home that's bombed. But in that film, uh, the bomb the, doesn't go off. The bomb lands, sticks in the ground, it doesn't go off, so they just start like decorating. Yeah, it. it's so heavy it that yeah. they can't move it, and so they're not even entirely time... sure it's it's. It's like deactivated. Yeah, so it just didn't go. They're off. just living in this home with this unexploded bomb. It could theoretically go off any minute. I, I, we have no idea. The Terrifying devil, start for a movie. The Devil's Backbone it. is might be my favorite uh, Guillermo del Toro movie. It's but, not mine, but it's really great. Yeah. It's not. It's, that, it's that, maybe that one, in my top five. That one in Pan's Labyrinth, I think, are his best movies. For, for me, it's but... Kronos, and and I know you give me shit for this, but Hellboy Two, I think, is great. <laughs> I know. I know. I, I prefer Hellboy One, and even that's not like a cinema class. I get it. Uh, so yeah, the child dies, and the Geppetto goes through like a decade-long mourning period. Oh, he's destroyed. He he's planted a tree in honor mm. of his son, and uh, enough time has passed that a tree has grown. Yeah, and, and uh, that that's not like a monument to his son, and he yeah. cries in it every day. And then finally, in a fit of rage, mm. like terrifying rage, and he's drunk. He's, he's drunk. He cuts down the tree, like the tree that is his son to him. Uh-huh. And in, like, a drunken rage, he rage puppeteers. <laughs> and and it's, it's like, it's like um, you ever hear that story about how, like, Keith Richards wrote, I Can't Get No Satisfaction? He was, like, completely wasted. And he had, like, a recorder on. And when he finally came to, he was like, oh, I was recording all night. And he pressed a button. Oh. And it's just him, like, Noodling on a computer. Around, yeah. around, I can't get no satisfaction. And he's like, oh, man. I should write that down. Uh, imagine if Keith Richards had made an evil puppet child. <laughs> and the puppet looks, um, it, it's not quite as wild as Little Otik from no, Jan Schwankmeyer's movie. But I'll bet it was inspired by it. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Guillermo del Toro is one of those frustrating filmmakers who tends to remake a lot of his favorite movies in little ways throughout. He will buy, well, that's, but that's a lot of filmmakers. That's a lot of a filmmakers. Lot, a lot of filmmakers do that, and they're rather shameless about it. And everyone from, Quentin Tarantino's famous for it, obviously, but a lot of filmmakers do that. And that's that's not inherently bad. And honestly, no, but and honestly, if you're, if you're going to, if someone's going to watch a Jan Svankmeyer film because Guillermo del Toro made a family film on Netflix... Yeah. I'm fine with that. <laughs> Jan Svankmeyer, by the way, if you don't know the name, so, uh, he's a, a Czech animator. He's a yeah. Czech animator, and he has worked extensively in stop motion animation, oftentimes with human beings. He's stop motion animated people, oh. um, and he's made a lot of really surreal, often very politically charged short films and feature films. Mm. Um, a lot of people will point you to his film Alice, which is an adaptation of Alice in Wonderland. Uh, I would argue that's his most accessible work. Because it's, it's a, a recognizable story. Yeah, yeah, I think it's easy to, to wrap also, your head around it, but there's another film he, about one of He did a Faust uh, movie. Yeah. He did... Um, uh, he did a film. His third feature film uh, is the best one of his I've seen, and I think it's incredible. Uh, it's called Conspirators of Pleasure. Oh, I haven't seen Conspirators. Oh, it's of so damn good. It is about a group of people in Prague who have very specific and highly. I don't know why my computer did that. Uh, they have very specific and highly unusual fetishes, and they live these little secret lives where they do very bizarre things. 
like roll up like they'll take a loaf of bread and they'll roll the bread into little tiny balls like marbles and they'll shove them up their nose and that's what does it for them okay but what they don't realize is that every single one of their weird obsessions and and mm. uh, 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 and fetishes is inadvertently connected to all the others like just indirectly huh. they're all connected through a, a network of secret lives that they never articulate to one another and it is absolutely fascinating truly bizarre really human just really understanding about just the the, the weirdness of people uh and it's great it's the, i was no other film quite like it i think it's fantastic but anyway um Guillermo del Toro is clearly a fan of Osvaldmeyer yeah i brought it up because um Jan Schwankmeyer made a film called Little Otique, yeah. which is kind of similar to a Pinocchio story, where sure. um, a couple wants to have a baby. They decide to sort of fake it, mm-hmm. and uh, with like a with like a block of wood. Well, like it's a, not, it's, it's, it's a root. Trunk. It's oh, like it's a root. yeah, That's right. they dig it up out of the yard, and it's like this kind though. of gnarly root that has kind of a like eyes and this kind of weird sucker mouth, and they mm-hmm. decide to start treating it like a baby. Yeah, and uh, wouldn't you know it? It comes to life, but it's also like voracious and starts eating people and shit. Yeah. Uh, it's a wild film. Yeah, very weird film. Uh, uh, everything so in Fire Dead was weird, but yeah, it's great. This He's Pinocchio, alive, this Pinocchio mm-hmm. looks like that. Like it's yeah. unfinished wood, kind of gnarled, a bunch of nails stuck in its back. Yeah. Uh, but still kind of friendly in a kid movie kind of a way. Well, so it's he, not too scary for kids. He's, he's very eager and he's very excited to be alive. And the weird thing, and this is a choice that Guillermo del Toro made, Geppetto doesn't like him. Mm. Geppetto is disturbed by his existence. He doesn't consider it magical. He thinks he finds it rather terrifying. He thinks of him as kind of like an abomination. Calls like, him a burden. Yeah, yeah, like he calls him a burden because everything this Pinocchio does makes life more difficult for him because he doesn't understand things like um, not showing yourself as a magical wooden boy in church in front of a bunch of fascists and getting dad possibly thrown into prison and killed. Mm-hmm. Um he uh uh he, he's a, he's he's a handful this kid and Geppetto has no tangible love for him mm. and he sees him as this weird pale imitation of his real son and he does not find of and yeah Pinocchio ends up going on a series of adventures he isn't particularly invested in becoming a real boy mm. the way other Pinocchio stories are uh he's invested in being alive yeah, and yeah. doing living things and that's all expressed through, uh, at least up to a point, a lot of the familiar Pinocchio story beats. Uh, the yeah. idea, like, you have to go to school, but mm. on the way to school, he is attracted into show business by yeah. this uh, rather insi- the sinister character. Yeah. Who, in, in this movie, is voiced by Christoph Waltz. Yes. Uh, wearing a, a very... Uh, Flock of seagulls haircut. And yeah, and he's he's the one who is the who is the really big nose and is yeah, a liar and runs the entertainment a, industry. And we're just not going to talk about that. But yeah, okay. he's, he, yeah, wants to sign contracts and steal money All from right. Pinocchio. And you're my star attraction, the living puppet. And uh, and then it takes a turn because this is set in Mussolini's Italy. They perform yeah. for Mussolini. There's a really wonderful scene where uh, he performs a rather like satirical song about Mussolini and it's all yeah. about pooping and farting. Yeah, like he he and that's finally a really hilarious he scene. finally realizes that he's being exploited and realizes that as the talent he has some power here uh. and decides to make a political statement mm. about Mussolini. He's not a very 
not a very articulate or, a or thoughtful, so, but yeah, like, but he's basically saying fuck this shit, mm. and that doesn't go well. Uh, and then <laughs> not uh, for him anyway. And then Guillermo del Toro adds this additional uh, element of mortality. Yeah, where uh, Pinocchio is killed, the puppet dies. Yeah, and awakens in the afterlife and there's these really cool like skeletal rabbit pallbearers yeah. that sort of carry you into the afterlife i, I suspect that's and, a that's a reference to swank meyer's alice it probably is yeah. and uh and there uh, pinocchio actually meets death who yeah. is envisioned as the sort of like sphinx, sphinx with yeah. like these big eye, wings and eyes are on the wings yeah and the sphinx introduces this interesting concept that he doesn't play through which is really frustrating it kind of does he kind of does and he kind of doesn't i don't like want to ruin the ending by you're there, you're but. a puppet which means you can't die but you're here in the the world of the like the afterworld there, there is you a consequence uh, for you dying. And yeah, the consequence so of this, you have to spend some time here. You have, to, you have to spend a little bit of time with me. But every time you die, you have to spend more time here in the afterworld before you get to go back to Earth. Yeah. Okay. This will be important later. Well, that's the thing. It isn't. Eh, a little bit. Like, it, it becomes a, key a plot moment, point it becomes, later, that's point, but, it becomes a plot uh, point. But they don't run with that concept. I'm thinking, okay, he's going to wake up in the present day at some point. He's going yeah. to wake up after the Earth has turned to ash and is just drifting through the cosmos. God, that would have been great. That would have been great if you just been take so it to the logical extreme, but they don't no, do that. No, they don't do that at all. Um, so basically, he goes on a series of adventures, some of which you'll be very familiar with. Yeah. Uh, some of which are particular, I think, to Del Toro's. Like, again, I'm not an expert in the original Pinocchio stories. I don't remember a thing about him going to fascist camp. No, like like yeah, a, like a summer camp for fascist kids. Uh, I don't. It's a lot like a Jojo Rabbit. Yeah, very Jojo Rabbit, and it's in the vibe. Obviously, I know there's a historical precedent for that, but um, there's a lot of different uh, uh, elements. Some side stories are really interesting and fascinating. Get to get good points across. Others, not so much. Um, much like the Zemeckis version, there is a point where him lying and his nose growing is treated like a cool superpower that saves lives, mm. which. Feel like is besides the point. It's a weird choice. <laughs> well, they're, they're try- Both films are trying to turn Pinocchio, which is like a picaresque fable, into an adventure story, and mm. I, I, you know, I don't think, I, it, again, I don't think I, it necessarily suits the material. Nor am I uh, an expert on Pinocchio, yeah. but it seems like it, we should have like sort of a moral point or a political See, point to be making, it, and not sort of. If you Bask view it, in the thrill if of you it? view it as a moral parable about trying to become a good person and ergo like a worthy person and becoming quote unquote real, um, then it's odd because there's it's a it's a profoundly moral tale. If it is a social satire, if it is uh, this little boy, uh, sort of every everything he touches, everyone he connects to is affected by him in some way, and we learn more about different aspects of society. Uh, it's still weird, because all those uh, uh, vignettes are at least theoretically pointed. Mm. You know, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a meaning to it. It might not be strictly moral. The moral might actually be that all this stuff is bad. But regardless, it's supposed to have a point, and it doesn't always. It actually ends up feeling... Well, a lot of it's very inventive and imaginative... Um, a lot of it doesn't actually feel very focused. Mm-hmm. And I ultimately think, although I, I think very much, a lot of this movie is very impressive. I actually really like the animation style. I think it's very beautiful. Um, I think ultimately it doesn't feel... The emotional st- uh, journey of the characters is all over the place. Uh-huh. And it tries to end on this truly... 
thoughtful, very sad note. And I don't think it really earns it. I think it just does it at the end. And because it's so emotional in its construct, you kind of go with it. But I don't think the story actually leads there very well. I don't think it really earns that. Mm. And I think all the stuff in the middle is kind of all over the place. It's a bit of a mess. It's an interesting mess. There's parts of it I think are very poorly thought out, and I think I've alluded to those rather clearly. (laughs) Um... But there's also parts of it that are really quite wonderful, and I definitely couldn't write this movie out, although or write the movie off rather, even though this is for me, and I feel weird about this. It's one of those frustrating things where this is a movie where Guillermo del Toro had been trying to make it for a really long time, uh-huh. and he's spoken very articulately about how this is like the most important story to him. This is the story he's always wanted to tell, and sometimes those movies from filmmakers who've been trying to make them for forever. Mm-hmm. Come out weird. I think it's, of Gangs of yeah. New York as an example of this. Gangs of New York is incredibly ambitious, and so much of it is wonderful. Prime example. It's, um, but I feel like it works better in Scorsese's head than it does on screen. Yeah, it's. Um, yeah. I started calling that Chinese democracy syndrome. Yeah, and we're going to be talking about that when we talk about uh, Avatar: The Way of Water. Um, <laughs> Uh, we, we imagine we've seen it, but we're not going to review it here. No, no, but, uh, my review is up on the wrap. If anyone wants uh, to, to to check that out, that's it's 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 documented. Uh, but yeah, when when a, an artist or a filmmaker, or an author, um, they can spend too much time gestating on something. Yes, uh, and waiting so long to make it that new, so many new ideas have entered the picture yeah, that it no longer that, feels focused. Yeah, that it all, that it all starts yeah. crashing together. It feels. Uh, and that was uh, what happened with um, the 2008 record Chinese Democracy. Yeah. Which, uh, if if you're a guy my age, uh, was a, a phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, Guns and Roses, it's the biggest rec- biggest one of the biggest uh, metal acts of the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Uh, Appetite for Destruction is pretty unassailable. Came out in '87. Sure, great album. Uh, Axl Rose, the lead singer, says, "I'm going to make a, a record. It's going to be called Chinese Democracy. It's going to be the biggest, most ambitious thing you've ever heard. And it took him 13 fucking years to make it. Yeah, and you listen, and it did come out. Came out in 2008, and you listen to it, and it sounds like it took 13 years to make. Sounds like they literally like, were working on it constantly. Yeah, like and we're, we're mixing it, and we're adding more, and we're adding be. more, and it's like this yeah. big, like it, it rocks pretty well, but it's it's this." huge complicated sound like it's difficult well, to get it becomes impenetrable tracks. it becomes yeah. for the person who made it more than the person who's trying to access yeah. it and which it, you know i'd say that's a legit way to make art that, that's that's not i'm not yeah. saying that's inherently bad i'm just saying it's not necessarily very accessible and i think that is a reasonable critique and i don't think it's nece- again i don't think it's necessarily a killer here i just i i see people really loving this movie hmm. a lot and i kind of get it but I'm not one of them. And it's a little frustrating because I want to see the movie you saw. Yeah. But I saw the movie I saw. And the movie I saw is an interesting, not always well-advised mess. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah. It's, um... <laughs> that, that's kind of it I, for I, me. I like, it's, it's, it's an interesting mess. It's, uh, it's, I, I don't think I, it's, I'd rather uh... have an interesting mess than a sack of crap. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's it's not so... uh, Please put that on the poster. (laughs) Not a sack of crap. No, I'd rather have an interesting mess than a sack of crap. I don't think it's it's as messy as all of that, but it it does... uh, Well, because that's sort of the nature of the Pinocchio story, where it's going to be like little vignettes. I think there's a way to do that where it doesn't feel messy, but okay. And I, I think there's, you know points to be made about mortality that are, you know, fine for a kid's film. They're not yeah. particularly uh, complex or deep. Um, no, they're just kind I, of just kind of generally sad. There there are songs in the movie that I could not repeat for you. They're completely unmemorable. No. Uh, and I think the voice acting is pretty good, especially on the part of Ewan McGregor. Mm. And we haven't talked about Jiminy Cricket yet. Um, in the Zemeckis film and in the 1940 uh, animated film, the cricket was called Jiminy. Yeah. In uh, this one is Samuel, I think. Um, I, I, I'm trying to remember. I wonder if Disney invented the Jiminy part and they yeah, own that. They might. They might. But, uh, uh, but, but there's, there's, there's see, a, cr- a cricket who serves as... Uh, Sebastian J. Cricket. Sebastian J. Cricket. And I feel like Ewan McGregor is the most invested of any of the actors in mm-hmm. this. He is actually really determined to make the cricket uh-huh. sound like a real character. And I feel yeah. like he's the one who's only giving the character a lot of... Uh, verve and personality. Yeah, there's a lot of fun details I like with Jiminy. I like the idea that Jiminy Cricket was literally living in the block of wood. Yeah. When Geppetto cut him down. And he still lives in Pinocchio. Yeah. Like, in his heart. Like, literally, <laughs> there's like a little hole in the wood, like a little notch, and that's where Jiminy Cricket lives. Well, that's that, a cute touch. Well, that, and that he, that he's uh, an ambitious yet failed author, I think, is yeah. a fun a fun detail as well. Yeah. it's uh, um. It, so there, there's, like, fun elements. The, the look is pretty interesting. The design yeah. of the characters is, is, you know, unique. And... But yeah, it's it's not gonna be. It doesn't hit me with like the big emotional impacts that I think other people are getting out of it because yeah. I think it's it, it concludes rather than comes to a point. I think that's fair. Mm. Anyway, uh, let's review some movies in our review roundup. All right, uh, we review movies on a scale of C minus to C plus. Our lowest a movie can get is a C minus. That's below average. That's everything from we just generally don't recommend it to the worst movie ever made. That's below average. A C is average, mixed bag, more for one audience than another, not quite great, not quite terrible. You know, average. And C plus is above average. Everything from we recommend it to literally the best movie ever made falls in the C plus range. On that note, where do you stand with Guillermo del Toro's and Mark (laughs) Gustafson's Pinocchio? Mark Gustafson's Pinocchio. Yeah. I give it a C. Uh, I mean, it's yeah. not a wash. It's not chaos or bad, but I feel like it's not a particularly strong drama, even though it is a very interestingly animated movie. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I think, again, it's it's too interesting to write it off. Yeah. You, you, I, I, I'm happy to write off Robert Zemeckis' Pinocchio. Because oh, it's not interesting. <laughs> no, no, no. It's like, you uh, can point out why it stinks, but it's not actually interesting. I think it's actually very pat. Um this is interesting, and I appreciate that they took big swings. I don't think they come together terribly well, unfortunately. Mm. But it's too interesting and too beautifully animated to, I think, call it bad. Even though there's at least a couple of elements within the story that I think are genuinely bad. Yeah. Uh, then, uh, so it's a C minus for me as well. Uh, a wounded I, I, fawn. I give it a C. Oh, I'm sorry. I give it a C. What did I? Just, oh my god. Did do you want to? I give forgot. It a C minus? No, I don't want to give it a C minus. I want to give it a C. Okay. It, I haven't reviewed a movie and a podcast. <laughs> In for, so long, for, I forgot it's, it's how it works. It's only been two weeks. I know, and it's <laughs> gone. I'm checked out for Christmas. <laughs> I'm already out I, the I, door. I think... <laughs> you're, you're, you're a member of a, a critics group here in L.A. called LAFCA, and, and 
the way Lafka does awards mm-hmm. is like an all day debate. It's a marathon. And, uh, it's it, it a takes lot. it takes like five or six hours or something. And, and like the so last think, week, I've been like mainlining like, depressing dramas, <laughs> just but, trying to cram them all in my head so that I've seen everything that I, could possibly I think like be. that was sort of like your finish line for the year. <laughs> I feel a little done. I'm not gonna lie. I love movies. I love movies. Still, we're gonna be doing all these movies or whatever. Like, but it was for me. It was like t- two days ago, mm. and I'm a little crashed out. <laughs> yeah. But so, anyway, that's that's neither here there. It's a C. It's okay. an interesting. Interesting C, but it's never quite successful enough to be a C plus. A wounded fawn. A wounded fawn. I'm going to give it a a low C plus, but I I like uh, this kind of horror movie where they're doing a lot with a little, Uh uh, and I do like sort of the points it's making, and I love the references to ancient Greek mythology. I'm definitely going to check that out. Uh, uh, The whale. The whale is a C minus. Mm. The the as we explained, I don't it think anyone's going to be surprised that we're both giving uh, this a C. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. a C minus. It, it's it's misguided. Yeah. It's missing its point, uh, and it does have a streak of cruelty, which feels mm. feels pretty mean to me. Yeah, uh, and. Uh, D- despite good performances, I think it's just aiming for the wrong target. I-, I would argue that I think literally every actor in the movie is giving a good performance, even if they're playing a character who is very badly written, which is sadly the case for some of them. Uh, but uh, but yeah, it's at best it's misguided. Uh, but it's so intensely misguided that if it can be this hurtful mm. and this unempathetic in its actual execution... Mm. That it doesn't really matter what you were going for after yeah. a while, and I think that's that's a problem. So it's a big old C minus for me. Uh, and then uh, finally, white noise. Oh, uh, white noise. You know, I'm going to give white noise a C minus. Okay. Um, I, I think it's just you use the word mess to describe Pinocchio. This uh. one's a little bit of a mess. Okay. It's a lot of weird ideas that don't aren't sticking together in any kind of interesting way. Uh, it's a film about mortality, but that's kind of the broad, vague thing I can say. Uh, I will say at least this. It made me interested in reading the book. It made me okay. want to see where this sort of messy story came from and how it feels as a work of literature, because I'm sure it works better that way. It certainly doesn't work as a film. Uh, yeah. Point, points for the, the mm. gall it takes to make a movie this strange and this ambitious, sure. but uh, I, I just wish it held together better. All right. Uh... All right, fair enough. Well, that is it for Critically Acclaimed this week. Uh, Next week, we will be back with a review of Avatar, The Way of Water. Will we start the episode with a long overview (laughs) of every single James Cameron movie? We'll find out next week. Uh, But uh, my review is up right now if anyone wants to read it, if you don't want to wait that long. But uh, we'll talk about it in great detail. This is a movie that a lot of people have been, you know, a lot of people have been really excited about for a long time. Uh, and we want to be able to talk about it in detail. So even though the embargo is up and we have both seen it, we don't want to talk about it at length. Until it's available. Until it's public, available, because yeah. there's a lot in it, and we don't want to ruin a, that experience. It's a long picture. We don't want to ruin that experience. We, sometimes reviewing a movie in advance means either you can't talk about it enough to say anything interesting, oh. or if you do talk about it enough to say anything interesting... Um, you're not really helping the experience for people who really wanted to see it before they saw the reviews. So we'll wait till next week and we'll go into a lot of detail. Uh, but thank you everybody for listening. Thank you everybody for supporting the show, especially our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. If you're over there, you can listen to our podcasts ad free. You can also get a whole bunch of exclusive shows depending on what tier you're at, including shows dedicated to every film in the Step Up franchise. Every single film ever nominated for Best Picture, every single film ever nominated for Best International Feature, 
which we're very excited about. We think we might have tracked down one of the ones that's really hard to track down. Yeah, so yeah. We're hopefully, hopefully we get that in the mail soon. Uh, we talked about every single episode of Star Trek. We, because of our pre- uh, previously mentioned laptop troubles, we lost an episode. We're hoping to get that episode back mm-hmm. when the laptop is returned, unless I lost my hard drive, which I hope not. Um, so you said it was just a monitor issue. So, so theoretically, it you should, should be still fine. Be in there, there's yeah. always a risk, unfortunately. Uh, so if the day I get that back, I will post that Star Trek episode immediately, or we'll re-record it if we have to. Mm. Um, and uh, we also do commentary tracks. We just did one for the Terminator. We're about to do one. Um, maybe not tonight. We'll see how, how much energy we've got uh, <laughs> for the He-Man and She-Ra Christmas special. Which is one of the worst things. Which is called He-Man and She-Ra, colon, a Christmas special. Get it? Clever. Yes. Uh, <laughs> anyway. And it has uh, Skeletor and Hordak. We and have, other toys. We have, we have Discord hangouts. We have trivia nights. We're going to do a holiday trivia night. Again, when my laptop gets back, I'll be able to confidently schedule that because I can't use my current laptop for that kind of intensity right now. Uh, but it's all coming. And it's thank you to all of our patrons for supporting us. You're very, very cool. Uh, and um, yeah, you can also follow us. We're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. I'm also on Hive, but Hive is his Hive is, is, is out of commission for a little bit. It, it's it's still out of commission. Like, Unfortunately, yeah. so many people signed up so fast. Yeah, that, they that were, it, it kind of broke it. They were overwhelmed. So, but when it comes back, if it comes, it, yeah. and I I assume it will. Uh, when it comes back, I'm so on top of that because I really I'm like that. I'm getting straight back to Hive. I it, like it was, that platform. It's really well put together. I really like that platform. Uh, I recommend so we'll I recommend Hive when it works. Yeah. Uh, well, again, the, yeah. Who, who who expected that much of an influx? Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we're also on Twitter. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Winnie Seibold. And, uh, yeah, never forget, everyone is a... Cri- oh, wait, no, actually, hang on. Don't forget, you can always email us. <laughs> uh, it's been so long since I've done it. It, yeah, you can always email us. Our email us. address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. If you want to talk about anything we discussed in this episode, anything, other questions you might want us to answer, anything else you want to talk about, we might read your email. It could be an episode of We've Got Mail. Whitney. <sighs> yes. What is our P.O. Box? Send us an actual physical letter to P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Thank you. Thank you, one and all. You're all wonderful. Now say the thing. Never forget, everyone's a critic. I'm sorry, what?